Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. New rewatchables went up on Monday night. We did Margin Call, me, Rosillo, and Koppelman. It is an awesome movie about the 2008 financial crisis. Check that one out. Uh, tough night for uh, the underdog parlay last night on Million Dollar Picks. We had Miami and Minnesota tied together plus 451, and Kirk Cousins said, I do not like that, and absolutely shit the bed in the second half in a really dramatic way. I thought the Vikings defense in the first half was just as bad. I don't understand the coaching at all. It looked like they had nine guys out there at all times, and it looked like both of the safeties were basically drunk. I didn't get it. I don't know why they were giving the receivers so much space. I thought Aikman did a great job calling all of it out. It was just a bizarre game. You knew right away. It was like, this doesn't feel good. Uh, Hertz was fantastic. They covered on the Philly Special podcast with uh, Shio Kapadia and Ben Solak. That Hertz played about as well as you could play for three quarters. Tailed off a little bit at the end. But uh, for three quarters was fantastic. That was really a strange game. And I'm moving Minnesota to my do not bet list because how do you know which Cousins is going to show up? Maybe it's just don't bet on them at prime time at all. I'm going to have to make a list of all the do not bets just going forward. Like another good one was the underdog at home getting more than seven points, which was the Cowboys on Sunday, which we did not put a million dollar picks, the Bengals. But that's another one where it's like home dog, seven points or more, just stay away. So maybe there's a whole stay away list that we can do for million dollar picks on Thursday. Coming up on this podcast, Tuesday's pod, very excited for this one. Ariel Hawani is going to talk about the bills and what's happening here and then give us our UFC update as we head into the last three pay-per-views in October, November, December. And then Logan Murdoch, a Durant student, you know, this Durant, the soap opera is done. So now it's like, well, where do we go going forward? What did all this means? And we're just going to talk about Durant for 20 minutes. What do we expect? How weird is this season going to get for him and the Nets? And last but not least, Sean Griffin is going to come on 
to talk about Tim Donahue, who has a new Netflix documentary out that a lot of people have mentioned to me. And I have hit the point, I have never had Donahue on the podcast. I hate the story. I didn't want to do anything about it, but there is so much misinformation out there now. And Sean Griffin is the single best person. He has been on this story since the late 2000s. He wrote a book called Game in the Game. And he is going to explain us once and for all why this whole Donahue narrative is just full of shit. And we're going to explain what really happened. So I would highly encourage you to stick around for that part of the podcast. That's all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, the king of Buffalo is here, not Josh Allen. Ariel Hawani, the number one Bills fan on this podcast. Also, um, you know, the guy with UFC stuff, the king of Spotify Live. We should mention, you want to do the king of Spotify Live thing? Just get that over I, with now. It's a good gimmick. Uh, 42,000 or so a couple of weeks ago, part of UFC 279. Wow. Uh, I mean, we went six straight hours, Bill. Six straight hours. I was at the airport. We didn't stop the show. We kept on going. One of the great moments of my career, people still stopping me Till this day on the street saying they were listening, they couldn't turn it off. Everyone else, here's the thing. Everyone else tapped out midway and we're like, we are not leaving until this is done. So there was only one place to go, Spotify Live. Amazing. So we got we got three more UFC cards for the rest of the year and we'll talk about them later. Right now we're gonna pay-per-views. talk about Pay-per-views. We're, we're yeah, going every week. No, you but I mean the pay-per-views. The big yeah, way you were worried eight. we wouldn't have enough shows. I think we're at like 80 in the past <laughs> 12. I'm, I'm just saying, uh, I think... I think we've over-delivered at this point. But yes, three pay-per-views, but there's a fight night almost every weekend. Yeah. Um, the Bills. They win again last night. They look awesome. They're the first game. There's this doubleheader Monday Night Football thing where at halftime, the uh, Eagles-Vikings game started. And the Bills game was over. It was great. I didn't even have to go into my back house and put the two TVs on because you knew the Bills were done. Bills now, pretty prohibitive favorites to win the Super Bowl. On FanDuel, they're plus 450. It goes to the Chiefs and the Bucks at seven to one. If you're talking about just, um, you know, who's go- who's going to be the number one record in the league? They're plus two ten. Nobody else is closer than four to one. And it just and AFC seed. They're plus one forty five. Are you thinking twenty and zero deep down? Are you thinking oh seven Pats, twenty two Bills parallels? What are you thinking? First of all, let me just say the fact that you missed the second half. Massive blunder on your part, almost as big as the blunder of putting the Bills on the ESPN game as opposed to the ABC game. I mean, what were they thinking over there in Bristol? That should have been the primetime game, if you get what I'm saying. It's all very hard for me to digest, if I'm being honest, because as you may know, the Pats were actually involved in a lot of these. Every time the Bills used to play on Thursday, Sunday night, or Monday night, they would lose, not just lose, they would get beat pretty bad. And so the idea now First two games of the season, season opener, first game of the entire NFL season on a Thursday night, they lay the smackdown on the defending champs at their home. Wasn't yep. even close. Wasn't. Is mind-blowing. Then they come back on Monday night, home opener, first time they win Monday night at home since 1994 and lay the smackdown on last year's number one AFC seed. We all know they weren't a real number one seed, but whatever, I'll take that. And here's the thing. Here's the scary part. If I'm being honest, scary part is I don't feel like they're playing that well. Like I actually really don't feel like they're playing at their best. Couple mistakes. 
tail of two halves. You miss the second half. They're incredible in the second half. First half, very sloppy. I'm scared for the rest of the league. I'm legit scared. Yeah, if you're nitpicking the running game, I don't think I don't think anybody feels awesome about that. Although, who knows? The rookie, I didn't see the second half. The rookie had a big second half. He had a big cook. run. He was a little bit yeah. uh, questionable with the ball in the first game. Cook, you're talking about. Singletary's all right. Zach Moss, all right. That's always been, you know, it was the run game and the run defense. We have fixed the run defense now. I mean, the defense is just tremendous. I have never seen, you know, Henry, King Henry, as they call him, looked more like Prince, if you asked me last night. He has, you know, given us nightmares over the last two years. Yeah. To see him get stopped in the backfield as many times as he did. What do you have, like 12 yards total? Mind-blowing stuff. It's a beautiful, by the way. Well, that's I, that's the Aaron Schatz curse at 370 thing that he's been on for 15 years for our friend of Football Outsiders, where Henry just had so much usage there that all football history says, this is bad. You should start shorting this person. Do not spend $60 on this person in fantasy league. He looked slow last night. I mean, you got, you guys look fast, but I thought he looked a little more plotting than usual. And I that I don't have a good feeling for him. Your defense looks, the Von Miller thing, which I kind of overlooked. I got to be honest when I was Thank doing you. my preseason stuff because it, it felt like he was in Denver first half of the season last year. It's like, whatever, he's on the downside a little bit rejuvenated a little on the Rams, playing for a new contract. And I just wasn't buying it. I was like, this feels like a new contract thing. I don't see him with the same kind of eye of the tiger, but it seems like he has it. And that was the one thing you guys needed. We needed that leader on defense. We needed a winner in the locker room. And you know, it's amazing. Like I I watch everything. I watch all the post-game press conference. It seems like he's having so much fun. He keeps talking Mm. about the atmosphere and the fans and how happy he is to be there. This is Buffalo, Bill. A guy like Von Miller leaving Hollywood, Los Angeles, to go to Buffalo. It's nice now. Let's talk in December, but he's used to this, right? (laughs) right? He knows this from Denver. The fact that he even signed with the Bills, I mean, maybe the biggest free agent signing of my lifetime as a Bills fan, a guy like that. Oh, that's an interesting list. Yeah. What, who else is even on that list? I mean, list? We, we would get I like guess the like Terrell the Bledsoe and, trade? Nah. Again, again, we would always get the guys at the end of their run, right? We would get the guy like Terrell Owens. We would get someone like that. Uh, got, got, you know, a, a LaShawn McCoy. I believe that was a trade. Point is, we would get guys... It was a little late in the game. Here yep. you get a guy coming off a Super Bowl, leaving sunny LA to come to Buffalo. What a statement. And you see he's having so much fun. I mean, just every, all the... It's hard. I want to come on here and be obnoxious Bill fan. Can I be honest with you? I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that we talk... You know, you talk to me in January and I'm trying to get myself psyched up for a Pats playoff game. I'm, I'm literally just praying. I am just praying, please stay healthy. Please, I saw Micah Hyde go down. That was scary. Just, I just want one, Bill. I just want one. And I feel like I will never get closer to one than I am right now. I just want to see one. And then I will talk all the shit. I'll be the most insufferable fan of all time. And I'm not going to be a dynasty fan. I don't care about that. I just want one. That's all. Well, you'll care about the next one once you get one. No, I, I don't thought care. that too with the Red Sox. No, I don't care. Yeah. I just want, I just want to know what it feels like. By the way, can I break some news to you? Yeah. I've been a Bills fan since 1990. I've never attended a home game at Orchard Park. October 9th, Bill, that changes. I wow. will make the pilgrimage to Orchard Park. First time ever in my life with my family. Bills, Steelers, the Mitch Trubisky game. We're going to kill them. Oh, it's going to be he amazing. Will, he will not be the quarterback by then. <laughs> It'll be Kenny Pickett. You'll be yeah. seeing Kenny Pickett in action. He'll be just as terrified, though. You know, we mentioned how the run game would be the one. Hmm, not sure, but it doesn't really matter because you have Allen. And any third and three, any third and four, 
he's going to make it happen. It just felt, I've, all I've done is watch football the last two weeks. It, there's a, there's a him and there's Herbert and there's Mahomes. Wait a second. And I do think there's a little bit of a drop off now to the next group. I did Brady Rogers is 41. Brady's 45. Brady looks like he's, to, he's making a business decision for this season. And he's probably going to like, you know, he's getting rid of the ball early. So it doesn't get hit stuff like that. But it feels like those three guys are now levitating above the rest of the league. And I don't even know who else you would even consider throwing in there. Is this the nicest thing you've ever said about Josh Allen? I feel like this is... He's, you, he's unbelievable. Okay, so are you a believer now? Because I feel like even even after week one, you we were texting, you're like, eh, he sent, you know, he threw three picks and all that. Still weren't giving him props. Are you, are you ready to finally say he, he's the best quarterback in the league? I'm not ready to say that yet. Who's better? But I think those three guys have, have I think they're levitating over everyone else. Josh still has like the two throws a game where you're like, ah, what was that? Two throws? That's what we're going to yeah. hate him for? Two th- Who's ah. better than him right now? A- AFC Championship game, NFC Championship game. You need to get to the Super Bowl. Who are you taking over Josh Allen right now? I would still have Mahomes just from because he's done it. Mm. I think what Allen has, whatever championship belt title he has now, is the I am the most scared of this person title. Like if you're going against him, you're betting against him, and it's third and three, you just feel like he's going to get it. And Mahomes, you feel like that differently, but he's, you know, it's it's the legacy of what he has, but he doesn't have the same weapons. This one, Diggs, you know, Davis, who didn't even play yesterday, the McKenzie piece, I still think is going to matter as the season goes along, but it just feels like, I, you know, I had the Rams in week one, and every time I just felt like, oh man, they're not going to stop him. And that that's, there's something different about that. Now, people are going to say, well, what, three weeks ago you were saying you didn't see it with the Bills. It wasn't that I didn't say it. I, I was very consistent with this. I didn't understand why they were just being penciled in. Like they were clearly the best team because you know how football goes. But mm-hmm. now after two weeks, they've looked the best. I think they are the best team. Wow, this is big. Because a lot of people sent me that tweet that you put out and I was going to make some snarky reply, but you know, I also want to remain employed here at the ring. Oh, so stop. You, you would have made the snarky reply. You knew deep <laughs> down, like I, it was a fair criticism. Why are uh, no, we jumping I, I, to the conclusion that this is clearly the best team when, well, can we just see it a couple weeks? And now we've seen it a couple weeks. Now we've seen it. And by the way, uh, if you recall, going into last season, there was a lot of talk about them potentially being the best team. And they stumbled out of the gate against Pittsburgh at home, a horrendous loss. Yeah. And I felt like they were too cocky. Like they just kind of believed their own hype. This time around, still a lot of buzz, still a lot of hype but I feel like they're coming out and they're proving it. Like they have this chip on their shoulder. Why? Probably because of 13 seconds, probably because of how last season ended. And maybe in the end, that ends up being the best thing to ever happen to this team. We'll, you know, we'll see. Also, Ken Dorsey, shout out to him, doing phenomenally. I'm very happy for Brian Dayball over in New York, but Dorsey has done an immense job and an incredible job. I'm so happy for him and what he's been doing. And it just feels like, you know what? You know what's my biggest criticism? The two first halves. It's almost like they're too hyped. They're too excited. Mm. They love playing together. They want to shove it down everyone's throat. They want to prove a point, but they need to chill out. And I love this Tua talk about the Dolphins. This is the cutest thing. I have these Dolphins fans text me. Oh, this is going to be so great. We're finally going to win the AFC. You'll see on Sunday because we're playing at Miami on Sunday. Oh, this is going to be so cute. I can't wait for this beatdown. And I could be cocky about this because we are... (laughs) A thousand. The only guy that scares me on the Dolphins is Tyree Kill, just because historically he has given us fits on Kansas yeah. City. 
different day and age, different time, different era. We're going to kick their ass. What is the line right now? You're the line master. What is it right it's, now? It's in that four to four and a half range. Buffalo favored. We, by 10. The Go weather will 10. be interesting. Like whether it gets super hot, humid. It does affect teams. It used to affect the Patriots once upon a time when we were good. Way, 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 <laughs> way, 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 way back when. Yeah, that Miami's, they at least bring something to the table, right? They're they cute. Have these, it's cute. The they have jerseys. this Tyreek who tilts the field and then they have the, uh, oh, it's minus five and a half now, the Buffalo line. But they have the Tyreek speed and the Waddle who is really either he's the best bubble screen guy or one of the best. But the combo of that is really hard to stop. The two no, thing, cute. I was not a believer. Rosillo went the furthest. Rosillo was like, he's a backup QB. I don't, I, I think <laughs> to me, he was a bottom 10 starting QB. That game, uh, 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 Sunday was the first time where he kind of looked like Alabama to it. Now, I don't know if it's because his receivers were just wide open or whether there was some sort of confidence thing, breakthrough he had, but he did have a poise in that game that I don't feel like he's had as an NFL quarterback. So who knows? Not we'll worried. See. He hasn't faced a defense like ours. They're on fire right now. And I feel like uh, uh, a division, quote unquote, rival, first one of the season, they're going to prove a point. The thing that I love so much about them, I mean, like Josh's post-game press conferences are so boring. They're so yeah. formulaic. But he's I just figured it out. shower in them. Yeah. I love it because he's so freaking intense. He, he's doing he the just, Brady thing. He's doing uh, that. I don't want to I don't want to fire yeah. up anybody or say anything that'll get me in trouble. So they have, they get through this Miami game. They're going to catch Baltimore at Baltimore week four, a team that is already, you know, the injury luck thing is already killing them again. They got KC in week six, Green Bay week seven, and then it gets pretty easy after that. There are only four road games left at, in for after November 6th at the Jets. They're at Detroit on Thanksgiving, which could be a sneaky tough one. It's that mm. 1230 start. Yeah. You just played on Sunday. I don't love that spot. Right. They're at New England the following Thursday, at Chicago the 24th, and at Cincinnati on January 2nd. But it'll be interesting if they if they go into at Kansas City 5-0 and Oof. and they come out of that with a win. There's a roadmap where the undefeated talk will start. I'm just telling you. Uh, this is too crazy. I'm just telling you. It's going to start. <laughs> what do we talk about? All we do is talk about football and look for dumb angles every week. I know. The undefeated thing will start. Oh, by the way, so I follow a bunch of the the Buffalo media guys on on Twitter, and multiple of them were talking seventeen and zero, like doing the exact same thing. Oh, if we get by this one, and then it's smooth sailing here. I'm like, what are we doing? Can we just chill out? Seventeen and zero is just absurd. It doesn't make well, sense. Did you see that fan. stat last night? They flashed about forty plus point games. It's crazy. I think since twenty twenty, they've had eight. That's usually if you're going to go sixteen and one, fifteen and two, seventeen and zero. You have to have an offense at that level where you're just putting up like 600 points. Yeah. And they do have the capability of doing that, I think, right? Oh, 100%. Also, the the punting thing is crazy. Um, they did punt a couple of times yesterday, but the fact that you were talking about Josh on third and five, third and three, whatever. Josh on fourth and one, fourth and two is lethal as well. It's It's an amazing thing. They just never want to punt. Can I tell you the one thing that I don't understand, and you being the expert can can maybe yeah. talk me off this ledge. I keep seeing Odell flirt with them, and it seems mm. like everyone is like wink, wink, nudging, nudging. Like oh, this is happening. This is ha why? Why do we need Odell? Can you explain this to me? Why bring in? You're this pretty guy? loaded at receiver. I would yeah. I would actually be more interested in uh, figuring out a, a running back uh, that could move the chains on third and three. That's the thing. Maybe that's Zach Moss, but. Who can get your third and two, your third and yeah. one in bad weather? That's not Josh. Do you want to put those miles on Josh of for course, five straight no. months? 
That's always been one of my biggest concerns. They drafted Cook first. By the way, did I tell you that they invited me to announce their draft pick in Vegas and I had to turn it down because I had to work that weekend? Like they want the Bills oh, called me next year. I, what a, what an amazing honor that was as a lifelong Bill fan to walk up there. I mean, I, these things happen yeah. to you all the time. For me, it was a pretty big damn deal. But the thing is, you got a guy like Stephon Diggs. He is happy as can be. He's he's your you know wide receiver one. You've got Gabe Davis coming up. I agree with you on McKenzie. Why do we keep talking about Odell Beckham? Why even rattle this cage? I know he's best buds with Vaughn and they had a nice thing. He's probably season. flown it out there to stay in the news would be my guess. I, don't I, know. My, I think he goes back to the Rams because they actually need to run it, need a receiver way more. All, you know day, all, all night last night, he's tweeting about the Bills. It's, 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 yeah, that's like, not great. He's flirting well, maybe he, with them. Maybe he think, maybe he's just batting his eyelashes, hoping to get, hoping to get picked. Uh, one thing I noticed last night, the home court in NBA, we call it, which matters less and less. And the home field in the NFL, which seemingly matters less and less as we move into the sweet era and everybody's on their phones during timeouts. But I thought <laughs> Buffalo and Philly had great fans. I love the Philly fans. We're booing Jalen Rieger. They're up 17 with four minutes left. He comes out for their punt. They're like, oh, last licks on Jalen Rieger. Like they were locked into that game. Same thing for Buffalo. We don't really have that with a lot of teams anymore. KC still has it. Um, but for the most part, it feels like Buffalo and Philly are at least in the discussion for best home field crowd advantage affect the game stuff. Yeah, you know, Cleveland people, you know, it's it's like those teams that are really thirsty for it. I know that Philly has uh, won recently, but I mean... I, is there a better fan base? Is there a more devoted fan base? Is there a more dedicated fan base than Bills Mafia, than the, the Bills fan base? I don't know. Like, name one. I mean, the Eagles one, it's nice and all, but, you know, they'll turn on that team. The Bills fans will never turn on the Bills. Even, even if this season, God forbid, a million times turns out to be a disaster, they won't turn on the Bills. They have been through so much crap over the last 20 or so years. People forget, it's easy to forget now, they were the last team in the 21st century to make the playoffs in the NFL. Right. It took them 17 years into the 21st century to make the playoffs. So all this is a nice story, and I see them talking about it on all the shows and everything. But like for me, honestly, it's still hard to process. It's still hard to digest. And we have been through so much. We have seen so much crap, so many bad teams. And I always said oh, next year's our year. Next, you know, like every fan base says, to see it come like this, to have that generational quarterback, to have that generational wide receiver, to have that defense, to have the coach, to have the front office, to believe in these guys, to have the owner, all that stuff. It's it's really, you know what? I, I've never experienced this. I was trying to think about this before because I know you love the comparisons. Once in my life, the 94 Knicks, when, mm. when Jordan left, was the one time in my life where I was like going in, I was like, I might have a chance to see my team win a championship. I have never felt confidence like I have now. And it's not like I'm trying to be braggadocious. Like I've never felt like, I, I've never had someone tell me your team is the number one, you know, betting favorite to win the championship. Yeah. Respect I don't know what that feels like. And so I don't even know what to do with myself. I'm just like watching the highlights over and over again. And I just want, I almost want to like simulate this season and make it to the end just so I can see how this plays out and then come back to September and enjoy it because it's, it's actually a lot of anxiety. It's very stressful. We had that with the Pats because the Pats really weren't oh. good ever except for like three seasons for the first 35 years of my life. And then all when it shifted, when they became like kind of the favorite, we had already won one, but when all of a sudden you're like, wow, we actually have the best team. It's a pretty, it's pretty long. I want to talk about the baggage stuff, but let's take a quick break. 
Start the NFL week off right with a no-sweat same-game parlay every Thursday from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel, if you already have an account every Thursday night, you get free bets back if your NFL same-game parlay doesn't hit. Same-game parlay is the perfect way to combine what you think will happen into bets for a chance at a bigger payday. For instance, I think the Browns are going to win on Thursday night, and I think it's not going to be a high-scoring game. I don't know if you've seen these two offenses, but you can do right now on FanDuel, Cleveland Moneyline, you can do the under of 49.5 at minus 560. If you put those together, it's minus 143. The player props aren't out yet, but I would grab a Nick Chubb rushing yard, like keep it low, keep it something in the, like the minus 240 range with the rushing yards, and just try to get it to even for those three things. Nick Chubb, some sort of over rushing you like with under 49.5, Cleveland Browns money line. I think that's going to be a winner. Build a parlay like that or build whatever you want. Popular same-game parlays are available on FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app, however you want to play. Bet the NFL every Thursday night. Again, a no-sweat same-game parlay. Sign up with promo code BS. If you don't already have an account, make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And again, promo code BS to get free bets back if your SGP doesn't hit. Must be 21 plus in select states. Three plus legs, minimum $1 bet required. Refund is issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire for seven days after receipt. Max free bet $5. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance. To win at McLobultra.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. All right. So you mentioned the baggage and the lack of success in the 21st century, which starts with the Music City Miracle. I Ugh. think that was in 2000. Yeah. The 99 going to 2000. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was like January 2000. Yeah. Or it was like basically that you start the century at that. And then last, last uh, January, you have the 13 seconds game uh, with the baggage with this team. You mentioned how sometimes that's a good thing to have. I disagree in some cases, but in other cases, yes. Like the 1986 Red Sox, when we had, when we blew the World Series, we had 13 chances with two strikes and, you know, that debacle. The 87 team, it was just, we were dead man walking the entire year. There was just the hangover that was terrible. But in 03, the Aaron Boone homer lose to the Yanks and the next year it's like they they kind of they had this attitude like well fuck it like we hit rock bottom or 3-0 against the Yanks and this fuck it attitude emerged from it what attitude has emerged from the Bills since that 13 seconds game because I feel like people have skipped over it a little and how it relates to this this season where there's almost like no baggage from it is it just we have too much to talk about now as sports because that was one of the worst football losses oh, of yeah. all time. And it's kind of just over here now. And nobody mentions it. 
Maybe it's uh, naivete, but I never thought that that was going to break them. I have too much faith in Josh Allen. I think a lot of athletes, you know, there's a, there's a fighter named uh, Jose Aldo who just retired from the UFC. He was knocked out by Conor McGregor in 13 seconds in 2015, greatest featherweight champion of all time. And I said on Sunday that his legacy aren't all the title defenses, aren't all the wins, aren't all the knockouts, aren't all, all the headliners that he had. It's that he didn't let that moment, which ironically, by the way, it's crazy that I'm making this analogy. He lost in 13 seconds. Seconds to Conor McGregor. That's an insane wow. analogy right there on my part. Thank you. Um, I, I, I didn't plan that. Ironically, 13 seconds, he didn't let that moment in 2015 define him. He didn't let it break him. He didn't let that swallow him up. In fact, he ended up coming back and winning an interim title and moving down to 35 and fighting for the belt there. And so I feel the same way about Josh. Now, Josh didn't have the resume leading up to that point that Aldo did, but there's something about this young man that I just felt even on that horrible night in January this past year, I didn't feel like this was going to define him. I didn't think that this was going to well, break him. Well, plus he him. came through. He, I mean, well, I mean, he the defense up. was what screwed it up. Yeah, yeah he, he got he the up. touchdown. It took the lead. Gabe Davis showed up. They all showed up. The defense, you're right. Leslie Frazier kind of let them down, but... Honestly, I, I I really felt week one we're going to find out who these guys are, right? I I, yeah. I was I was always worried about that Pittsburgh Steelers loss in week one of last year because I felt like they believed their own hype too much and they got punched in the mouth. The perfect scenario was go back to LA, the site of where you would have won the Super Bowl, and I believe till this day in my heart of hearts they beat the Chiefs that night. They're beating the Bengals at home and they're beating the Rams at home as well to win the Super Bowl. You go there, you set the tone and they couldn't have done a better job. And honestly, do you think I'm crazy for saying this? I really don't feel like we've seen their best. I really feel like they have another gear and I can't wait to see it. I don't know when it's going to come, but even the first half last last night, I was like, this is not that great. This is not, this is not number one seed football. The second half was tremendous putting it together for, and that was a 41 to seven game against the number one seed. Unbelievable. I, I can't even, I can't, I can't even put into words. This is amazing. And you, come on, you have to admit, football's more fun with the Bills doing well, right? Well, they basically, basically the Pats handed the torch to them. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, the Pats, like, they dominated the AFC East. They won in 2001, they did it in 2002, and then from 03 all the way through the 2010s, they were crushing it and they were the one or the two seed every year. And then as that's dying, the bills rise up. And I had Sean Fennessy, who, who uh, I work with, who's a huge Jets fan, was just like, I don't understand this. Like, we just had 20 years of Brady and now I have 15 years of Josh. That's, you know, like two thirds of my life as a football fan with these two fucking guys in my vision. <laughs> like, like, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> He's trotting out Joe Flacco. Um, I yeah. can't wait to see how it plays out. Can we talk UFC quick? Yes, for sure. Also, I feel like we need to have one comment because I got a lot of comments the last time we spoke about pro wrestling. A lot has changed in WWE. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that at the end. Okay, All quickly. Right. UFC. So we have 280, 281, and 282 coming up. As yep. you know, I'm casual yep. UFC fan. It They... They seem fine, but do we have like a monster? Oh my God, get your friends together. Is there a monster battle left before we get yes. out of 2022? What is it? Okay, well, first of all, 280 is a fantastic card. It's probably the best pay-per-view on paper. Also very fun. It's happening in Abu Dhabi, so it's during the day. Now, I know if you're a hardcore college football fan- I don't love, love that. that. At the 2 p.m. Eastern start time, main card, it's tremendous. You have it on the screen while the other football's going on. The main event is Charles Oliveira 
the guy who missed weight, they took his belt away, but he continues to win. He's unbelievable. He's never in a boring fight. He's allergic to them against Islam Makhachev, who's the disciple of Khabib Nurmagomedov. Like that's been his guy. Like he has brought up his protege. And so a lot of people think if Charles can beat Islam, maybe this is the moment that brings Khabib out of retirement to go for 30 and 0 to oh. essentially, you know, get that one back. A lot of people think Islam is going to win, but that's a fun storyline. Also, you have Sean O'Malley on that card going up against Piotr Jan. The card is great. Sean Brady against uh, Bilal Muhammad. There's just a ton. I didn't of ask you about the card. Okay. What, what did you want? I wanted, what. what's the best fight left? These okay, last three cards. Great... So is Adesanya? Okay. Israel Adesanya versus Alex Perea is an amazing fight. That's headliner for MSG November 12th. Um, these two guys have fought twice before, Bill. And guess what? Alex he didn't hate him, him out. Yeah. Yeah. Alex knocked him out in kickboxing. Now, this is kickboxing. Knocked him out and beat him via points. Now, here's Izzy's revenge in the sport. He's way more comfortable in MMA. That's great. And if you don't like that, Michael Chandler against Dustin Poirier on that card. Oh, that man. Is an unbelievable, Poirier always has good fights. Oh, my God. That is an un that's on that card. And then December 12th, they're still trying to figure it out. Uh, it might be Francis Ngannou. It might be John Jones. Maybe, by the way, October 29th, Jake Paul, Anderson Silva. You tell me you're not buying that? That's um, tremendous theater. Well, I know my son's getting it. That's great stuff. Yeah, we got both Paul brothers are really playing it smart. Because in, in we a had Logan. Stretch. Logan's going against Roman Reigns at, at uh, where is that? Survivors, the Survivor no, Series War Games thing, uh, or the Crown Jewel in uh, Saudi that's Arabia? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be good. Um, okay, so we're feeling good about you, but nothing will top what happened last month. I mean, that was I. Now you've had time to reflect it. Oh, Leon Edwards. Is that? Jeez. Is that is that the greatest? Because we have enough time. We've had a, everybody's had their takes. Everybody's thought about it. Is that the greatest UFC moment ever? It's hard to say ever. For me personally, it's top five because of the story. This guy was screwed. He was so screwed over the last three years. Like the corporation, they were trying to throw everything in his way. This was like, if you remember the Kofi Kingston build of a couple of years ago, oh, yeah. making him beat every single guy on route to WrestleMania. This was Leon Edwards, soft-spoken guy from England. No one was fighting for him. No one believed in him. No one wanted him to win, it seems. And then he finally, almost like reluctantly, gets this title shot against Kamar Usman, who's talking about fighting Canelo, who's talking about being the pound-for-pound -pound king, being better than GSP. And what happens? Wins the first round, sort of. Loses the second. Loses the third. Loses the fourth. He's now down to the final 60 seconds. The fight was done. I, I was done. I was reading my iPad. I wasn't even... I got the, the, somebody screamed, whoa, and I looked up and I didn't even know what happened. In the last 50 seconds, he pulls off this incredible knockout. Usman's never been knocked out before. And uh, it's just like, when, so when you mix well, it. Well, also it, on, a, on a leg kick. On a kick to the head. Yes, it was amazing. And this, if I can give the cheap plug, this, in a nutshell, if I could ever tell someone like, oh, why do you love being on Spotify Live? And this is hand to God. I, would tell, I, I think I've told you this as well. Yeah. That night, which was really 7 a.m. in the UK, yeah. was one of the greatest experiences of my career because we had all these British fans call, I'm getting goosebumps telling you the story, crying. And we put together like a little highlight reel of it, literally crying and saying what this meant to them, that this gave them hope, that this gave them light. People from Birmingham, this working class town, nothing good happens to them. To be able to speak to those people in that moment, like that was the closest thing that you could have to a post game show on the radio back in the day that I would listen to. It was such a special, well, you special also had, moment. And you had Usman who was about to break the record or tie the record. Yeah, and, uh, Anderson and he, Silva's record for most wins to start a career. And now they're going to run it back most likely in April or March at, we're talking Wembley right now, 
UFC hates doing the stadium shows because of the weather. They're always afraid about it, but they got to do this. They will sell that thing out. If they put on like a UK versus the world card with him and Patty Pimblett and Molly McCann and all these people that have been doing so well out of the UK right now, Arnold Allen, they will sell that out in an hour. Top. So you had a kick to the head, which is just about the hardest way to knock somebody out. I think in an MMA fight, oh, or yeah. the, the least likely outcome to a knockout. You had he's dominating the fight and there's only a minute left. You had the announcers almost on cue talking about how they felt bad for Edwards. It's, he seems like he's given up. Everything about it almost felt scripted. It really did feel like professional wrestling. It was, um, and, and one of those things where in pro wrestling, that never happens, right? Because it was so obvious that Usman was gonna win. Yeah. They were screwing him over all this stuff. And this guy, Leon Edwards, who everyone said couldn't connect with the audience, who said he was boring, that he wasn't good on the mic, all that stuff. He cuts this amazing promo, this passionate promo afterwards. And now he's a huge star. Like anytime you post anything about Leon now, it explodes. All of a sudden, I don't know how this happened. Again, one of those things, it explodes. And then the following month, we have the Nate Diaz Hamzad situation, which was straight out of pro wrestling, where they tried to screw him too yeah. and give him the worst fight on the way out. And then somehow Hamzad misses weight and all this craziness happens. UFC has been so crazy lately. It's been a lot of fun to cover because it's just all this unexpected stuff happening. So who's the guy right now? Are we, are, are people auditioning to be the guy? Who's the guy? Well, when you say the guy, do you mean like the number one box office? Who's the guy? I, who's the guy? Is he, to me, like number in one, WWE, Roman Reigns is the guy. Yeah. There's no like for sure box office. Honestly, this is what they wanted. You know who the guy is? The guy is the UFC, the brand. What, what they want is we come to town, you don't know who's on the card, you're buying tickets. And that's, they're, they're killing it. They say they're on a 26 I mean, or that's 25. what football, that's what the yeah. NFL wants, where they, the don't, they don't want like the superstar. They just want parity, 32 teams. You never know who's going to win every year. And that's what they want. They want that. Uh, that's what WWE strives for. That's what Eddie Hearn and Matchroom Boxing are striving for. That's what Top Rank wants. They want the brand to be number one. And right now, UFC can do no wrong. Even the Nate situation. They tried to screw him. What happens? The card gets better in 24 hours. The ratings are up. The ticket sales are up. The gates are up. The pay-per-view buys are up. The move to ESPN Plus has worked out tremendously. Uh, so yeah, if I had to pick a guy, I would say Izzy's up there who's fighting in MSG. They're putting him in that spot. They put him in international so fight week, but there's a lot of pressure If Izzy gets his revenge, I think he be, he becomes the guy, but it still doesn't feel like some of the other guys. Because remember, had. that fight was kind of, you know, yeah. not so great. So he has yeah. to deliver on the biggest stage. And what about WWE? Can we talk about this? I mean, Let's this do it is, now. We have, we'll devote the last eight to nine minutes. So we have oh, oh, it's 2022. On fire. On fire. This happens with with wrestling, it seems like, I don't know, every 10 years, every 11 years, it's like the godfather when they go to the mattresses, where just <laughs> a sea change happens and you can feel it, where AW is grabbing a lot of real estate from them and they're becoming the cool hip. And WWE just feels old. And for the first time, it feels like Vince is just out to lunch with how he's booking stuff, the kind of stars he's either letting go or pushing. There's no rhyme or reason to the storytelling. They blow with the NXT brand. And in the span of six months, you have Vince forced out um, for, for a really good reason. Then you have Triple H, who's kicked to the side. Obviously, there was some Vince Triple H stuff going on. You have Nick Khan. So now you have this Nick Khan, Vince, I mean, Nick Khan, Steph, Triple H running the WWE in the way that the fans kind of didn't understand why they weren't running it this way. 
getting behind all these different wrestlers, building storylines, having better matches, like actually programming Raw correctly, rejuvenating the NXT, and at the same time, the AEW, I don't want to say it's cratering, but it's in real turmoil. So what do you care about more? Which storyline? Oh my God, that's a tough question. I'll say the story of Triple H coming back, as you said, like almost kicked to the curb, obviously had the health issues, but you could see all the stuff that he had invested in, NXT being the main one, building up these new stars, talent, et cetera. It all felt like it was being blown up. The theory out there was they went head to head with AEW, they lost, and so Vince wanted to kill it. I actually asked Triple H that question point blank, and he said, that's not true, but that's what the internet says. Well, we, there's a better theory, which is that Vince put it against AEW, to knowing it. that it wasn't gonna win to cut its legs out because he was nervous about Triple H basically on his territory, which as we know, Vince is a competitive dude. That wouldn't surprise sure. me. I just, I can't believe how quickly things have turned. Like for me, I remember us talking the last time we spoke, they had just announced Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar as the main event uh. for SummerSlam. And I remember saying it was boring. It was tired. We've seen it a million times. We saw it at WrestleMania. It wasn't a good match. I'm tired of this. It was lazy booking. It was the same old, same old. Triple H comes in and the vibe, the, 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 the atmosphere, the originality, the unpredictability of it all, it has been amazing. And you know, I, I've gone to two events since uh, the change. One was SummerSlam, it was too fresh. The other one was Clash at the Castle in Wales. And you get to talk to some of the guys and, 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 and women as well. And the, the, the vibe and, and the, the, the mood surrounding the product, surrounding the company, surrounding the business has dramatically changed. There's so much optimism. There's so much positivity. Everyone, you know what it feels like? It feels like when there's a coaching change mid-season and, you know, one of the boys gets promoted from, you know, the being a bench coach to, you know, the, the interim job, if you will, even though he's not interim, but you get what I'm saying. And then the team goes on a 10-game winning streak because yep. they want to win for him. And it seems like everyone wants to win for for Triple H and for Stephanie, they're all beloved. Like no one says a negative thing about them. And I think the little things that Nick has done, obviously I'll always say, you know, we used to work together, but they're bringing these fun little things like the press conferences. I like this stuff. It's making it feel real. The stare downs. I think there's more of that to come as well. The He's stealing is, some UFC stuff that I, I think love is it. smart. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, why not? By the way, UFC has stolen a bunch from them. Steal from UFC as well. No problem. And Nick is obviously a longtime boxing guy as well. Plus, well, and he's also stealing from the history because we broke this on the ringer that Survivor Series turning into Survivor that. Series war games. They're doing it in Boston, one of the only locations where nobody goes away for Thanksgiving. Everyone's going to be around. The crowd's going to be great. The war games thing is still like one of the coolest revolutionary coolest. ideas in the history of wrestling. And it'll be really cool. But there's real thought being put into this stuff now versus just running it back, running it back, running it back. Survivor Series became an afterthought. It was one of my favorite pay-per-views back in the day. Always yeah, Thanksgiving sucked. weekend. It was Raw versus SmackDown. Who cares? I was at the last one last year and it was Big E versus Roman Reigns in a non-title main event. No one cares about a non-title yeah. main event. Make it title for title at least. So yes, I agree with you on that. And you know what I love? All the dudes that got let go over the past year that everyone was up in arms about, they're all slowly but surely coming back. He's re-signing all of them, the carrying crosses of the world. There's, yep. a lot of, there's a lot of buzz right now that Bray Wyatt's gonna come back this Friday. A lot of people, Whoa. Braun Strowman, like Triple H, the guy Little is Johnny Gargano fire. come back? What, my yes. son's favorite. he's Gargano. back? It's amazing, it's amazing. Like all these guys who over the past year, it was just like fired, 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 fired. Yeah. They're getting their YouTube channels back. Like the, the, the positivity and the vibe, who would have predicted this? Honestly, who would have predicted this three months ago that WWE would now be on fire and AEW kind of floundering? Now I will say, 
AEW ratings pretty good. They had 1.2 last week. AEW is fine. They're just this is the first time they've had to deal with a little some promo. of the stuff that pot that pops up if you're running a wrestling league, wrestling also, federation, whatever it's called. When the inmates are running the asylum, when you got all these guys, there you go. quote unquote VPs, it's bound to mess up. Just ask WCW circa 1998. Oh yeah, MJF. No, they're, they're repeating the. It's so funny, Tony Khan, who runs AEW, who I think one of the reasons AEW succeeded was he was a student of the history of mm-hmm. wrestling, and he really. I think smartly put together this thing with Cody Rhodes and some of these other guys for how do we stand out against WWE and it worked. And then he completely replicates 98 WCW, which I thought, you you know this. You probably have the old Dave Meltzer newsletters about how this (laughs) fell apart and you're just redoing this? Crazy. Mess. That press conference was a mess, but MJF, in my opinion, right now, pound for pound, the biggest attraction in the business. I mean, that guy, the promos, are you a fan of his? Do you watch I, his stuff? Well, when I asked you before, who's the guy in the UFC? Yeah. If MGF would be the, if if that had been the question for wrestling, it'd be MGF. Like he's got to be, if there's a number one draft pick, if AEW and WWE blows up and we could just start over, who's the number one pick? 1,000%. He's yeah. 26 and he's taking a page out of the NBA where he's talking about the bidding war for 24, where he's going to be a free agent January, he's talking about the date. He says, January 1st, 2024, I'm going to be a free agent. He's actually making this into a thing. Yeah. And he talks about Nick and Bruce Pritchard on AEW. Now, who knows what's a work, what's a shoot, but you know us wrestling fans, we love this stuff. We can't get enough of this stuff. So he's saying, I'm going to go over there to the real wrestling company. We love this stuff. What he is doing, he's the best heel in the business. He's the best performer in the business. He's Shades of Roddy Piper, circa 1987. I'm glad you said that. that He's the first guy in what almost 40 years that reminds me of Piper. He's amazing. Because I thought Piper was a one-on-one unicorn. People have tried to like dabble toward imitating some of that, but it's it was unimitatable. Some of the stuff hasn't aged well, we should mention. But yeah. he was just an insane, incredible wrestling heel. And this guy has it and he has the ability. I think the rock had it before the rock got turned into a good guy where the ability yeah, to walk rock. into a ring. Yeah. And kind of size it up and everybody hates you and bask in it and then make them hate you a little bit more, but they're still loving the hating you part. That's what he has. The the most, and I agree with that, the most impressive thing that MJF has done as of late was the the Wednesday after that bizarro press conference and everything seemed to, you know, go to hell with AW. He comes yeah. out in Buffalo wearing a Josh Allen jersey and everyone loves him. He's the savior, he's back. And he got somehow the fans who were cheering him, giving him a standing ovation, going nuts for him to turn on him because right. he is so damn good. Like he came out and fir- and then threw the curveball and wiped his butt with the jersey. And it, you know, it was so amazing. Like this guy, the biggest challenge for him now is, as you know, people love to cheer the bad guys in wrestling. It's like the cool thing to do. So they're going to start rooting him? for him. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be able to. They even Piper turned into a good guy. Yeah. Which is incredible. Piper did some of the most evil stuff we've ever had in wrestling. I think the gimmick of wearing the jersey in the town and then turning on the jersey and th- like that, that's never not worked. It, it makes never feels so bad. You can do it never. in Kansas City. You can do it in Buffalo, Minnesota. Pick a city. We didn't mention the, uh, I mean, there was this huge backstage fight that oh. I thought was, you know, because they've done so much kind of wink, wink stuff at AW. I was like, I don't believe this. And then people were like, no, no, no this happened. It's and legit. then in the fallout of it, the way it's covered, CM Punk, who's the biggest, at least the most famous person they have, 
calls out everybody in this press conference for the people listening who don't know, and then ends up getting in a huge fight backstage with the young young bucks, Kenny Omega, who's going to be a free agent soon, it looks like. Yeah. And a real fight where people are getting hit with chairs. People are getting sucker punched. Bit. Uh, somebody got bit. <laughs> and now everybody's suspended. And the reason we know it's not a work is because they're not even acknowledging it. It's They're just not on. They put up Punk's title, basically. They made it. Yep. They vacated it. And they're kind of pretending it didn't happen, but all the wrestling, you know, in the, the newsletter, internet, message boards, it's a little like 97, 98. It's funny, wrestling going back to its early internet roots. This is the best though, right? I, I yeah. even spoke to MJF yesterday. He wouldn't talk about punk. He wouldn't address punk. He wouldn't say anything about him, which made me feel like, oh, wow, this is like legit. They're running Arthur Ashe on Wednesday, which is a wild thing. Like I think- Great idea. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great venue. They did it last year. It's a great venue for that. The business is awesome, man. I was really, when we last spoke in July, I was super down on wrestling. Like I thought it was so boring and stale. Now, I honestly can't get enough to the point where my kids and I are buying the cards, the Panini cards, and they're fun. Like the cards are really nice. There's AEW cards and WWE cards. Like I I am really into that announcement, that Survivor Series announcement was like, this is another thing that he's reviving. This is another thing that he's bringing back. The one thing I love about Triple H, is that he respects the history. It almost felt like Vince would try to spit on the history and ignore the history. And you see what what Triple H has done with the US title, with the IC title, he's made it important. Survivor Series, like one of the pillars of the pay-per-views for WWE all those years, the big four, bringing that back. I can't wait to see what he does with Mania. I spoke to him in in London a couple of weeks ago and he gave this like, passionate plea to The Rock, like looked right into the camera and cut this promo, why The Rock needs to come back to WrestleMania in in April at SoFi. I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. Like he's really talking to The Rock right now, unless I was just falling for it like a total mark. There's something about that guy, like he can do no wrong, I think right now in the fans of the, uh, the, in the, in the eyes of the fans. And he hasn't missed. Even this Logan Paul thing, initially when I heard about it, I was like, well, that's a little bit weird but they're going to get a ton of buzz for it and it's going to be a fun one-off and they're going to go their merry way and no harm, no foul. Well, and he's putting in the time too. It's not like, you know, a typical celebrity coming in and they don't really, even like that. I don't think the Rousey thing has worked at all. And I think they know that now. And she just doesn't have the personality of the charisma. Logan Paul is the charisma. Oh my God. Tremendous heel. He, it's not MGF level, but it's, it's a level below. He just gets it. He gets how to, connect with the crowd, which is the quality you're looking for. But I think with Triple H, he respects all different types of wrestling bodies and styles. And that's, I think, what Vince lost during those last 10, 12 years. He just wanted like the big guys. He just wanted to, how many times did we see Kane and Undertaker? Oh yeah. For a 10 year span there. It's like, nobody wants to watch this anymore. And it just kept running it back. And you know, one thing that they've gained in all of this that's underrated, but I think is going to be huge for them. I believe strongly, we might've talked about this in the past, like every promotion, it doesn't matter what combat sport, boxing, MMA, wrestling, you need a face. You need a guy on the dais to say like, this is why you need to watch on Saturday and give me your $65. And all the media loves talking to these guys, Dana White, Don King, Bob Arum, Eddie Hearn, et cetera. Vince was once that guy, but in the last 20 years, the guy did no media. He never showed his face. Now, all of a sudden, if you notice, 
they've they've transformed Triple H into that guy. Like when they had the presser, he's up there, he's talking about it, he's doing interviews, he's doing scrums. They've now all of a sudden gotten a face and it's a recognizable face and it's a respected face. And it's not just a fake figurehead. It's a guy that you believe is actually running the show because we know he's running the show. He's the head of creative. And now all of a sudden you've got- <laughs> Well, also somebody who has media. 40 years of interview experience and he's amazing. doing bits and working with crowds. So he's perfectly suited. They've turned him into like a good guy, Dana White. He's showing up yeah. there. He's likable. You want to listen to him. You want to talk to him if you're a media guy. He's saying good things. He he's he's rootable, if that's a word. He just, I mean, he almost died. He said it himself last year. Like, how can you not root for someone like that? He seems like a family guy. Like, what they're doing now is is really smart with him. I love it. Well, it's crazy. 25 years after the Montreal screw job, we have this this other seminal summer that it just feels like things have shifted. All right. Ariel, we will see you for uh, on Spotify Live before those last three cards. Maybe a couple other ones, and then absolutely, uh, yeah. You want to plug our anything next show you is go? this Thursday. Our next oh, show is this Thursday at one p.m. On Thursdays, we do kind of like a news and notes show, and uh, yeah, the next big pay per view is October twenty second, and we'll be on in the afternoon. So that card is going to end at five p.m. Eastern, and we'll have an afternoon post show like we always do. All right. Good luck with the bills. Good to see you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather, you want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay, that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. All right, our guy Logan Murdoch is here. You can hear him on the Ringer NBA show, hosting The Real Ones with Raja Bell, season three. Yes, sir. For you guys. And then we can read it on the ringer.com as well. You're also. I don't want to call you the Kevin Durant whisperer, but you're a student. <laughs> you're a student at Durant. You covered him. You followed him. You put a lot of thought into him. And you covered him for the Warriors for a couple of years there. Yeah. And then you've been covering him as a national guy. And one of the, the, I just, I said, let's come on and talk Durant because now that the summer drama is done, now we are moving into the season, which somehow starts a month from now, a month from it's today. Crazy. It's ridiculous. It's insane. I, and I thought it's yeah. I thought it was like like two weeks ago. Feels like the finals, and we're here now. I, it's like the fastest offseason of all time. 
Yeah, and it feels like football just started. I'm not ready to think about it. And as I think about storylines, and I want to talk to you about the other one as well um, that I didn't prep you for. But Uh this Durant one, we're four weeks away. This has the potential to be a complete disaster. Right? So that's that's one side. Yeah. There's another side where it's like, ah, this might work out. This could be interesting. And w- maybe Durant just wanted to make it clear he was unhappy. But once it was clear he was never getting traded, he's too competitive. He cares about basketball too much. It's not like he's going to check out. This is going to be like Vince Carter on Toronto. So out of those two paths, which one would you bet on? Um... I don't know, because I feel like every time during Kevin's tenure in Brooklyn, I feel like every season has started with this. Like, it could be cool, and it also could be like an unmitigated disaster. I always veer on the side that it's going to be straight because it's going to be it's going to be good because Kevin's so good, and he's good enough to, um, you know, there's stretches where, you know, like think about the 2014 stretches MVP year where he just does it. He's one of those guys that can just win it by himself. In a yeah. lot of ways, right? Um, it can take over a game by himself. But then you have the now that this tenure with the Nets, everything is just that can go bad has gone bad, right? With it starts with um, you know the Kyrie situation and the James Harden situation. I think I'm going to go out on a limb here just because you know we're kind of we're past the COVID phase where it seems like the league is really caring about what what COVID is, and I think that that really helps Kyrie, and it's going to help him. Uh, you know, be the Kyrie because when he plays, and I've seen, I saw Kyrie play a handful of times last year. He's really fucking good, right? He's really good when he when he's when he's on. And I think if he can play about sixty games and um and and do some things, I think they can be a really good team. Plus, you know, aside from all the stuff that's happened from Ke- in Kevin Durant land, the Nets had a pretty good offseason. You know, the Nets had like they got some good, they made some good trades. Got Royce O'Neal on the roster. They made some, they made some good moves to make you think like, oh. Okay, they can do something. So, little TJ Warren, little possibilities. TJ Warren, ben not, Simmons, right? maybe. Who? Kn- maybe, yeah, there's maybe. a lot of. Oh, if this happens, okay. yeah, they have like, like five like of those. Every single year that Kevin's been on the Nets, I've thought this going into the season. I picked the Nets to go to the finals last year, and and um and so I don't know. I, I think I'm veering towards it's going to be okay. I looked at the Instagram post from the Brooklyn Nets, and it was uh, Kevin Durant's first like day back into the gym and they had the IG post. He's smiling. He's dabbing dudes up. And I don't know. I think I got like a little feeling like, oh, it might be okay if the dust settles. All right. So here's here's the question for you, the Durant. I don't want to call you historian, but maybe Durant studier. I do think the trade request was legitimate. I do think, and we've talked about this on the pod in a bunch of times. I don't want to rehash all my theories for it, but I do think he wanted to get traded. I think he reached that point. I think it became quickly clear to everybody involved that there was no trade that was going to make the Nets happy. Mm-hmm. So you have to dig in. The only part I, I don't understand is the either Nash and Marks go or I go thing. I thought that was just poorly executed because yeah, I don't think, first of all, the Nets owner who's one of the most successful business people, not just you know in the NBA, but in the world. He's not going to be like, oh, I didn't realize you were going to threaten me. I guess we will trade you. Like, he's just not going to do that. And then the the ramifications of just the relationship now with Nash and Marks, you can clear that up. You can be like, oh, my bad. But it's going to be hanging there. I don't understand why he did that. Why do you think he did that? 
Well, before I get into the why he did that, I, I also there's something that I haven't been hearing much of lately as, as like theories and stuff of what happened. But like if you if you're gonna ask for your coach to get, and your GM to get fired, you don't want to do it like in August. You probably want to do that in the springtime where there's you know there's other GMs on the market, other coaches on the market. If you're gonna do a scorched earth thing and stay with the organization and make that type of Magic Johnson type ultimatum. Yeah. I want to do it in August where there's literally no one to hire that will, you know, that can really take the job and run with it. So that was the odd point about with me. Um, I think the reason why I was looking at the timeline of like when he asked for that trade and, you know, I, I, it, it really, it really seems like, if, you know, with the hindsight that, you know, Kyrie isn't happy. So, you know, Kyrie's going to have, I want to get my man's what he wants, right? Because in the in, when you're when we're in the matrix of this trade request, it seems like, oh, Kevin, Kevin's fed up, you know? Maybe maybe he's just uh, done with the whole thing, right? He's done with, like, just the drama that's going. He's just the last guy to be like, no, I want to be out of here. And honestly, on a face value, you can make a good argument of why KD would want to be traded. Just everything that's gone wrong, right? Um, even though that he kind of brought a lot of this on himself. But, you know, you can talk to yourself into saying, like, oh, KD wants to be traded because it's just a shit show in Brooklyn right now. Whether I created it or not, I still want to dip. But if you look in hindsight, it's like, okay, what happens? Kyrie doesn't get the contract that we, that he wants. There's there's whispers that he's they're at an impasse and there's, there's, no, there's not going to be a deal for Kyrie. And then you see... That's the that, catalyst. Right? That's the catalyst of the whole thing. And then you see... Kevin's like, oh, well, if my man's isn't going to get a deal, then like, you know, that's my bud. I want to, and this goes back to when I talked to him back in March, it's like, oh no, this is a partnership with me and me and Kyrie. And now that's not happening. Okay. Well, I'm up out of here. And, you know, I remember in the moment thinking like, okay, is that me? You know, just, the, just thinking like, oh, does that mean him and Kyrie on the outs? No, it doesn't mean that because they're training in LA like a week later, just still together and kicking it. And so I think that well, you Once, hold on. You left out. He signed the extension a year ago a year to commit, ago. assuming that Kyrie would be the next domino. Yeah, and then the and, Nets were like, "Well, wait." It, rightly so. We're like, "Well, wait a second. Did you see the last year that Kyrie had? We're not as crazy anymore about giving him that deal." And that's yeah, the, that's another catalyst. Yeah, and I, I just feel like we're, it, it seems like just you know outsiders looking in. It just seems like whatever Kyrie is doing. And me and you have talked about this off record. It seems like me. Uh, it seems like whatever. Uh, like Kyrie is doing, Kevin's like, okay, we, I'm going to roll with you. And that's something like they have this bond that is pretty unexplainable, right? Even when we kind of talk it out, it's like, but why? Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to follow this person that has, honestly, if we talk about relationships, Kyrie, at least outwardly from everything that we know and seen, has not held up his end of the bargain in terms of friendship, right? He's not, I wouldn't say friendship is probably hasn't held up his end of the bargain in terms of being a teammate. Basketball right? friendship. Basketball yeah, teammate. friendship. I'm not, I don't, don't want to get into their personal, but at least on an on-court thing, Kyrie hasn't held up his end of the bargain. Like if I'm, if I'm your teammate, I'm supposed to be there every game if I can control it. And he just wasn't like that, that the last season. And so you're like scratching your head to like, why this, what's up with this bond? And I remember just hearing like during that time, it's like, well, the Nets didn't do enough to understand Kyrie. They didn't do enough to, to really, to, um, you know, be, give, give all their resources to help this guy out. And I think that that manifested through the trade, the trade request. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that, I think you hit the two. And I think the Simmons trade was the other piece that hmm. when they traded Harden, 
they also were making a bet that Simmons was going to be able to play for them last year. And Durant's at a point, you know, where he's trying to win titles and he knows there's at least a little bit of a time limit on how many years he has left. And yeah. Simmons comes in and he's he's hurt. He's got back issues. He's acting very strangely, showing up for the games. Um, we've talked, like, just the behavior just in general was pretty odd and it doesn't seem like he's reliable at all. And I think that was a piece. And then I also think, I do, and I said this before, but I do feel like there's some sort of, when you talk about the reporting of the story yeah. and you have like, you know, Woj and, and Shams are basically the, the newsbreaker kind of getting the stuff out there people right now. And Sean Marks and Woj super close. And the stuff that was coming out, I feel like, I, I don't think KD, I think he lost trust in the front office with stuff that was supposed to stay behind the scenes. Yeah. I think that was another, it's a small piece, but it's got to be mentioned. Well, to your point, there was a story that came out, like, especially during the, um, the lockout, not the lockout, excuse me, the, what would you call it? The, the, the break between the pandemic and then going yeah. into the bubble, right? There's the hiatus. Story, the hiatus. And then there's this world story talking about Kyrie in a lot of different ways, right? Where he's talking, it's just, in hindsight, it didn't really seem like, you know, the most, you know, it seemed very one-sided, let's say. There was the Kyrie piece that seemed very one-sided from ESPN. And if you're Kyrie or you're Kevin, you're like, yo, what, what the hell? Like, we're supposed to be a teammate. And to your point about that relationship that we talked about, you see that from a – from look look from Kyrie and Kevin's standpoint of like, yo, what the hell? Like, we're, we're – like, they think of – Kyrie and KD think of this as a partnership, right? Yeah. Between all parties. And um, just in hindsight thinking, like, that I'm not saying that's when the distrust started, but if you're looking from their vantage point, you're like, "Hey, man, what, what's why? Why are why are we doing this? If 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 they think that someone is leaking something like that, they'd be like, "Why would you do that? Why 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 would you do that? That could be something where they're like, oh, I, and I'm just throwing that out the way, but it doesn't. It, I, that happened a few times. Distrust that happened a yeah. few times where it was like, oh, okay, we're gonna just hmm. like leak leak blame Kyrie. We're not gonna blame Kyrie outward, but we're gonna just leak." blame them to one of our, our trusted uh, our trusted guys. And the Nash piece is harder to figure out and I only have theories on this. Yeah. But if they, if, if th just look, if you're Nash, right? Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, I've not talked to Nash about this. Um, if you're Nash, do you want to coach Kyrie again? Do you trust him? Do you trust Kyrie to respect the sanctity of your team and to put the team above himself? for an entire season after what you just saw coaching him the last couple of years? The answer would be no. Well, and not only that, do you trust him to be in the lineup? Do you, not he, even that's just on I mean. injuries, do, do you trust him to just to be here every single day? So if Nash is telling these guys, we have to get rid of Kyrie, it's a, this is a losing bet. Don't do the contract. And that got back to KD. I think that could be the breaker. That's a theory. I don't know for sure. Yeah. I, it's just weird because it seems like this partnership was kind of doomed from the start in a lot of ways. When you yeah. talk about, um, you know, when Kyrie was on the, was on Kevin's podcast talking about how, you know, we don't really have a head coach and things like that. And, and that just didn't start it off on the right foot before you even play a game. And then, yeah. um, you know, the, then the things go on with not, this is before like the, the, uh, the vaccine stuff, but like when, 
Kyrie leaves for two weeks, right? During a pandemic and is, you know, out, you know, maskless somewhere, you know, going to parties and things like that. And, you know, the relationship seemed to erode before it got better. So like, I'm really curious to see how this works. If everybody, because in August there was this kumbaya moment, there's a statement like, hey, we all met in LA. We're going to figure this out. It's all right. But that came like two weeks after after Kevin, it's reported that Kevin says, oh, well, him or me, them two or me. So I can't just imagine that everything is all peaches and cream after all of the things that have happened, all the baggage that has been accumulated between uh, Kyrie, Steve, Steve Nash and Kevin Durant. I can't imagine that this is all kumbaya moment and we're just all going to be good. I- I'm surprised, honestly, that Steve Nash is even coaching right now. I, I- I, I, I can't. I didn't think. I thought he was for sure going to be gone this season. I'm really surprised that he's, he's even the coach right now. You know why he's coaching? Because he why never won an NBA title. What, what's that theory? What, okay. Why? Why? why what he's is that? Never won the title. He never made the finals. Okay, so he's trying to do that as the coach. I just felt yeah. like you know, usually, but like Fuck yeah. historic. But historically speaking, Bill, coaches don't survive players not liking them. It just doesn't happen. We but if you're about- Nash, you're, you're one of the best 40 players ever. You have to have some sort of innate confidence in yourself to reach the level that he reached where over and over Also again, one of the most loved guys in the league. Yeah, like, I'm well, sure yeah. he's like, you know what? I've been on some fucked up teams in the past. We'll figure this out. We still have Kevin, who's still one of the best 10 players in the league. Yeah. We have an East that's, you know, pretty wide open. Um, and I'm sure he's talked himself into if we can just get Kyrie's head right for eight months, we have a chance. The Simmons part is the part I can't figure out. But you look at their roster, like Joe Harris comes back this year, right? You mentioned Royce O'Neal. Seth Curry's healthy. He was playing hurt last year. They got Patty Mills back. Who knows with Cam Thomas? They signed Marquise Morris. We mentioned TJ Warren as an X factor. They're still too small. Simmons solves a lot of problems for them from a yeah. defensive standpoint. I'm not counting on him at all. He's a luxury at this point, a very expensive luxury. But as you said, Kyrie's going to be able to play the full season and he's got a real incentive because he is a free agent after this year. He's playing for another contract. The other thing is you can always trade him in February if it's not working out. December, January, February is an expiring contract in a talent. That's when you can make some sort of move. So, so here's another I don't thing know. though, like on the trade part, like say if this, this is, this is the argument that it goes bad, right? Say if, Kyrie, it's, it doesn't work out. And Kyrie is either demands a trade or it's like, oh, he's going to get traded at the deadline. They say they sit him out, right? Like by December or January, they're like, we're just done with Kyrie. We can't do this. Or, or worse, he, he sits out with some sort of injury or something that you don't even know if it's real or not. Right. Say that happens, right? And they trade him. What does that leave Kevin? What does that, where does that leave him if he, if this is a guy that is, uh, if this is a guy that he hits the wagon to, and Kevin's still one of, the, in my eyes, a top eight player for sure. Yeah. What does that do if he gets, if he's like, yo, you just traded my mans, I'm pissed. But this is this is a stretch run. This was what led to the trade re- request is the question, where does this leave Kevin? He's looking around. And he's like, all right, so Kyrie is now an expiring contract. He might not be happy. And I don't trust this Ben Simmons piece at all. And you're asking me to go toe to toe with Giannis and all this stuff. It's funny because Katie and Kyrie get mad when people talk about the off-court stuff, right? They're very, very, very on the board of basketball, basketball. It's all about basketball. I just want to hoop. I don't care about this other stuff. The problem for them and the problem for anybody 
who's an elite athlete in this sport is that we only have 18 to 20 guys to talk about, right? They're going to yeah. have this salary cap that's going to boom in the next three years because the meteorites deal. And, and Kevin Durant is going to be worth $80 million in the open market, whatever it is. The interest and the microscope on these guys when they're signing $400 million deals for five years, the expectations that's going to come with that in a 30-team league, 32-team league, this stuff's only going to get worse. We're going to talk about this stuff 12 months a year because we love basketball. And it almost seems like they don't fully understand that's how the game works. Especially well, yeah, this, well, when it's a soap opera like this. They don't want... They don't want us talking about it. They want them talking about it through their channels and their Twitter feeds. That's not, it's not that they don't want to talk about it, but it's like, right. Hey man, this is how we drum up interest in your sport. You know, this is how, <laughs> this is how this thing works. This is how you get an $80 million a year deal. You know, this is, this is just, this is the game. And, um, and that's a whole nother discussion. I just, I, I, I kind of just, the new media thing. Uh, I don't know if you want to, you want to get into that. Some, at some I don't, point, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know if that relates to it, but I, to me, the new media has been around this whole time. I mean, certainly like we have, you've been doing a podcast with Raja for the last two years. The fact that yeah. he's not playing anymore, he's still under the hood. To me, it's all about who can take us under the hood and tell us things that I can't tell from going to games and watching TV. Right. More I think, like who can control their narrative at that point. But, but that's what, that's my fear with this new media stuff is it's not unfiltered. It's actually going through a different kind of filter, which isn't any better or worse than the the filter of the non basketball people have. Like some, like, and this was before Draymond's podcast. But that interview he did with KD, what was that for Turner or NBA TV? Yeah, it was for Turner. So, yeah, BR Turner and Rose. Where, where they're like sweeping stuff under the rug, and they're just like, oh, the media blew that out. It's like the media didn't blow anything out. <laughs> the media was there covering it every day. You were there in those locker rooms seeing how fucked up that season was and everybody around it was talking about it there's no way to there's no spin on that that was the situation that's why, that's why it's just hilarious to hear that because we were like in the trenches you don't know how tense that was for those for those god three four months until yeah. until like i mean it's still tension but there was tension from the time that argument happened and i do want to get back to brooklyn obviously but yeah from the time that that happened until Kevin walked out on crutches with that torn Achilles, man. Like it was every day, every day there was just, there was something or there was just some creative tension and I don't care how they try to spin it. And I know both of those guys, but it's, it's hilarious just to see that spin. It's almost like the Kobe um, last year, you know, it's almost like that, right. Where you just, where we're just going to say it our way and things like in that, in that way and we're, we're going to say it our way and hopefully that that sticks and there is truth not to say like that interview that you referenced there's truth a lot of truth to that and we got a lot of candid responses and we got a lot of insight into their um into their relationship but i think that like it's going to come to a point where you're just going to have to take pieces out of out of different arguments and just kind of put it together to and then the truth will come in somewhere in the middle i think that's a really important point i think this stuff is really valuable to have i just think we have so much inside information and so much insight when we see an interview like that, that we know what's bullshit and what isn't. I don't blame those guys for doing stuff like that. I think no. it's no different than celebrity journalism or anything else. You're going to spin it the way you want to spin it. And that's the thing. I think there's more of an onus on fans than ever just to grab the information from these different spots and then try to piece it together for yourself and see what you want to believe. 
Well, another thing on that is like right now, when you talk about journalism, it's it, the reason why it's one sided is because we want it to be so fast. And the and we don't, you know, back in the day, and I, I talked to all my OGs, it's like you would call the other side at least for comment, you know? We don't yeah. even do that anymore. It's more of like, oh, I heard this, it's gonna come out 15 minutes later. And it's, it's, that's why it's so slanted, in my opinion, is like we don't take enough time to just call the other side. Because I mean, that's just the fair way to do it. This is, it just is. It's and you get better stories when you do that. We're going off on a tangent here, but like that's, no, it's that's an important. It's an important tangent though, because like you were a young reporter, and you were actually there every day, and you develop relationships with different players, right? We we just had a Ringer NBA meeting last week, and we were talking about the importance of still trying to have relationships with people you're covering, um, yeah. which unfortunately has become harder and harder as as basketball players have become more and more famous, more and more wealthy, they have more and more people around them who control their brand. It's yeah. really hard to cut through that in an authentic way. And you really have to spend time with somebody and win their trust. And I think that happens less and less, which is why it's so also much more when transactional. You win their trust, when you yeah. win their trust, you also have to be fair, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't, it's not win your trust and I'm a mouthpiece for you. It's win your trust and I, I like, I'm going to say some shit that you're just not going to agree with. It is what it is. And you're going to just do some things that like, maybe I wouldn't agree with, but like, that's just the game. And I think we've just gotten away from that. Like, yeah, we can have a constructive conversation. We don't have constructive conversations anymore. Because yeah, it, when they do it, it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm over this. It's done. We're done. We're done now. It's tough because when we hit the point where like Harden quits on two teams in two years and, Kyrie does all the stuff he did last year and Ben Simmons refuses to play for the Sixers and you have all these touch points, those guys should be criticized. And, I mean, and here's that's the thing, the way everyone it goes. on that team should be criticized, I think. Like, you know, Kevin deserves some blame. We haven't talked about Harden yet, but like Harden deserves some blame in that instance too. Yeah, you are annoyed that Kyrie is doing what Kyrie is doing, but like also there's real human emotions like, you're all like you also came back to play with someone that you grew up with and Kevin Durant, right? And then yeah. you get he gets injured and all of a sudden you by all intents and purposes quit after um because there were two two instances um like during that season where they had a I think they, they had two votes on Kyrie as a team, the Nets did. Uh there was um in the beginning of the season there was a vote to, you know, not have him play on the on the team you know, for the, for the beginning of the season. And Harden was one of the guys that was like, okay, I vote not for him not to play. Right. And then why run the time when they needed him, they were having injuries and things like that. There was another vote. Do we want Kyrie to come on the team or not? Do we want him to play? And he voted to have him play on the team. Right. And so like, there are these th things where you, you could have made your voice known a bit more. You get yeah. what I'm saying? You could have made your voice known a bit more in these things. And also, like, if you're going to stand on that, then stand on it. If you if you want Kyrie to play, then you got to kind of play with him. You know what? you, Especially if it's midway through the season, you know? And then you quit. You quit. And then you get traded. For, and then you get traded. Make sure you go get traded while, like, the guy that wanted you here and that got you out of Houston, you know, is injured. Then you go through this process. And it was just, he's, 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 he deserves some blame too. Kyrie deserves some blame for not being there for his teammate. Um, kind of Kevin deserves some blame for kind of hitching his wagon to a lot of these guys that have been in this situation for that, that he know that he knows. And, um, there's a lot of blame to kind of go around here. And 
what kind of, but we can't get that during this new era, right? I can't just say you're a great player, but you deserve blame for this anymore. That's what I feel like that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And it's tough because with basketball, these guys have such an outsized impact on their franchises, right? Football, which I I think there's been a little bit of a flip-flop where people love football Mm -hmm. and people are frustrated by basketball where it was maybe the opposite seven, eight years ago. Um, In football, the quarterbacks matter the most. There's no question. But it's really because of the way football is and you played football in high school, so you get it. Like, there's still a respect for the team. There's still a team over the player. But now you have three quarterbacks on a team. (laughs) <laughs> right. now, now, now your big three is three guys like, you know, Kyrie, James, and Kevin all legitimately are quarterbacks. Of They're on Mahomes. Mahomes They're type. all that yeah. good. They're yeah. all that good. And now you have, that's why it's so hard to have these types of teams, right? Like even Golden State, which was, or e- even Golden State, which was this, um, you know, this, this poster for alleged good vibes. Well, honestly, when you actually look in hindsight, it was just a lot of shit getting swept under the rug that was serious. Especially the, the second rug. the second title season, I think, was unhappier. Yeah. West alluded to it a couple of times, but for the most part, they kept some stuff in. The first season was the best. I think everybody agrees best. that was one of the best professional experiences for all those guys. But I yeah, think it this, got, you know, the Durant Curry thing, as you said, that when one guy's Mahomes and the other guy's Josh Allen, that's that gets weird. But I, I'm glad you, the Warriors piece, so I talked about this on a pod a couple of months ago where I said the only way I thought Durant was getting traded was if it was Golden State. And I thought mm-hmm. there was real interest on both sides. And Joe Lacob was behind the scenes really enchanted with the idea of going after Kevin because I think he sees the dynasty piece of this. And yeah. in, in a big picture, I could go down in history as owning this team that was this iconic basketball team, right? So there's interest yeah. on his side. There's interest on the KD side. There's a package that makes sense. I don't think anyone else in the Golden State organization wanted to pursue Durant. But Curry said in an interview last week that he confirmed it, that this was real. With it, We kicked the tires on this. We talked about it. And I was all for it. Do you actually believe that? Yeah, because like during that time, um, I'm, I there's a, there's a lot of layers to this, so we'll get through all the layers. But the Steph layer, I'll go with first. Steph around that time was like openly like kid kidding, haha, like Kevin could come back, right? He was he was just like right, that was around the summer during summer league and things like that. Yeah, about he would. This is the first time he said it on record, so we can kind of speak on it. But um, he was just like kind of kicking, like you know, he haha, he might be back in the Steph way. You know, Steph. He does the he he, he doesn't outright say it, but he'll laugh and like do one of those things. But he always has a, his message always comes through. Um, but there were uh, there were definitely mutual there was mutual interest on both sides. I remember hearing whispers, um, you know, around Brooklyn when I came come back that sometimes you know Kay would say like, yo. If this shit doesn't come together, you're not going to like jokingly, you know, jokingly, if this shit doesn't, you know, get his stuff together. Then you can always go back to Golden State. You know, there's always there's always a chance to go back to to Golden State. There's, and and this is just even on outward post with, with Kevin. Like, have you ever seen a star that has moved clearly moved on from a team? But all, the conversation always goes back to the team he used to play for. Like, I don't even you ne- you never see that. But like. Every time there's on Twitter, there's there's always an inflection point that he always responds to Golden State stuff. It's never net stuff. It's never things like that. Like, let's juxtapose that with LeBron. Like, does LeBron talk about 
was the last team he was the on? end of like the end does of Miami. End yeah, of, he's always end up talking about the end of Miami. No, does he always end up talking about the end of Cleveland? No, every time he talks about Cleveland, it's like, hey, I came back, or like, I want to, you know, I, I came back. Like, I, I brought I, them I'm a back. title. I brought him a title, but like, LeBron is clearly in Los Angeles. He's clearly there. He's it's it's. it's is is ten toes are all in Los Angeles right now. He's never always looking back, but there always seems to be like I'm all Kevin's always looking backwards on that to the no, Golden that's, State era. That's insecurity about how that whole run was perceived. Where he felt like he proved that he was the best player in the world. He went toe to toe on LeBron and beat them and then didn't get the credit for it. And now as Steph ascends and becomes, you know, the most famous player we've had since the ascent of LeBron and then after what happened in the 22 finals then now well, it's now all that stuff gets dragged back you also brought up the lake of part of this and I do before we talk about what you just talked about I want to talk about the lake of point of this where lake of more than anything I I don't know what, what owner to I wasn't a, really alive during Jerry Buss like that but like he's a owner that always wants to be in the conversation right so like if yeah, it was tight to win a title, but if we won a title and got KD back again and ran it back, yeah, like we're the most famous team in the league. Well, they're already the most famous team in the league, but like Joe Lacob loves to just have like not only win the championship but win the headline while winning the championship. Like after they won in eighteen, what did he do? He could have got somebody else, but he got Demarcus Cousins. Why? Because it's really tight to see at media day that we can get Demarcus Cousins on the mid level exception and. Just we want to dominate you, and to to after winning the title, if we can go back and just go trade for Kevin Durant and just get this reunion the way it was supposed to, and just run off into the sunset, let's do it. Remember, right after, if you look after the, uh, I think it was opening night of 2018, Lake of after as he's giving KD the ring, he's like, "Stay, just stay. You know, you want to do it. Just stay." After all of that, and you know, there is a part of Lake of that's like, "Yo, man, let's." Let's just do it. We're going. We're going to compete for a title, but let's just never in doubt. Let's just let's just build this for as much as long as we can. Let's just let's just win as long as we can during this window. And that's that's Lakeup. It's too bad it didn't work out that way. Well, you mentioned Lakeup. The Celtics, I think, as an organization, were not interested in Durant, but Wick was the owner, and yeah. it it ties into this whole Wick Lakeup thing, right? Lakeup was a minority owner for the Celtics. He leaves does the Golden State thing. Golden State beats the Celtics in the mm-hmm. finals last year. And there was the Lake of Wick stuff. Not not like a feud or anything, but just like, all right, that's the minority owner who leaves, who now beat me. And now Durant is sitting there as this little prize and the little Celtics Warriors were. And I, I honestly believe that was the only reason he even had meetings about it. it was It was well, like, I don't want Lake of to get this guy. <laughs> There was a, there was a, uh, during the pre-finals press conference, uh, in June, uh, Lakeup spoke. It was like impromptu. No one, like he just came yeah, in no and one was asked. like, I'm going to talk. No one asked. And he was like, I'm going to talk. And he said something, they asked him about the Celtics, uh, Warriors, just like, he, he asked him about the Celtics. And, you know, if you know Lakeup, you know, he grew up, he was in Massachusetts, a really big Celtics fan growing up, listened to Johnny most, like yep. just narrate the dynasty. That was his thing. But. He still had, he said all those things about his love and respect for the Celtics and hopefully that he does it. But the last thing he said, he had to dig at the Celtics. He said, unprompted. Yeah, we own our building. I think they lease their building. I think they lease their building. We own ours though. <laughs> it was just hilarious. Like right? that just, that just, that just 
speaks to him all he's so competitive and just wants to one up the Celtics because I guess maybe in like his hard odds he might have want to own the Celtics back in the day and oh they, now, no it, no that's a hundred percent what it is okay. plus yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some rich guy bullshit going on with yeah. that it's it's like a big dick swing battle all the time and Lake of Steam beat Wicks team in the finals. In the, in the NBA finals last year. You were there. You've seen how it was. It was it was a very interesting like tension there. And like the Celtics and the and the and the Warriors don't have an historic rivalry, but there was just some a little like oomph in that in that. There was uh, a little big brother, little brother stuff, which made which is why I got I was so mad that Tatum went to Draymond's wedding because I was like, let's actually try to hate these guys. We talked about this. Please don't offline. be friends. Please don't oh, be we- friends with these guys. I think you should. I don't know this, but I think you should be a little concerned about yourself. I think you should be a little bit concerned well, I am, about I yourself. I am a little concerned, not just about like the Tatum aspect of it, but like I'm curious to see how they respond to this Durant trade rumor, right? Yeah. Because that trade rumor was a little weird because it came like three weeks after the like the talks were even talked about, right? Like it was like a late rumor. It came out like I. I think they feel like it. It got leaked to try to undermine them that I think there was a lot less truth into it. Yeah. You know, if I, if I call you and I'm like, Oh, you're, I heard you're moving out of your house and getting rid of all your stuff. What are you going to do with the bad boys poster? Does that mean I try to trade for your bad boys poster or did I just ask about it? Or is this like your sab- I think more so like your sabotage to move me to LA. Like Logan, like I want you to move to LA. This is the <laughs> thing that I want you to do. And like you kind of like play mind games to get me like to move down. I don't know what that is. Guess what? But, like, you didn't move. It didn't work. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I, I think with with uh, with that, I do think there was, you know, is Durant really available? Well, what are we talking here? And they're like, we want Tatum. And it's like, well, Tatum's never getting traded, so that's not happening. And the Nets come back with something. And the Celtics are like, all right, well, let us talk on our end and we'll, we'll circle back. That's not, we offered this for But it seemed blah, blah, like blah. that happened, right? And then three weeks later, it gets leaked when the situation is already done, right? Where it's like, we've already kind of washed our hands. That's that, what, that was the vibe it got. It, it was undermining. Yeah. The, look, the, the biggest issue with the team is that Jalen is underpaid for what for being a top 25 guy in the league. He's got two more years left on his deal. They're limited in the extension they can give him. And the media rights deal is coming where he's going to be worth $70 million in the open market. And that is how this affects this season. I have no idea. I trust the Udoka relationship with these guys. But it's an X factor that they didn't have last year. More so, like, and I think, let's get back to the Tatum thing really quick. Me and you have talked about this offline, but, like, you kind of want your star after he got embarrassed in the finals to just disappear for two months, right? Just go, yeah. in, the, go in the lab and just be really upset. Do the Don't Magic Johnson 1984, I'm exactly. just so depressed we lost. People are worried about my health, kind of. Yeah, take it yeah, that we, way. That's what I really want out of my star. And I just, yeah. I hope that, I like, I want, I, I want Jason Tate. I really love Jason Tate as a basketball player. I want him to have that fuck it, like, post-finals, you had me fucked up. I'm going to average 30, 7 and 7, and I'm going to win MVP type year. I want him to have that year. But I'm just disappointed. I don't want to see him with Jay-Z a week later, week after, like, losing in the NBA finals when you clearly were maybe that's ready for just, the moment. Maybe that's just the world we've created in sports though. This is just how it is. I don't like it, man. I mean, you know what's crazy? I've been getting I don't like it the, either. I'm in the old age, right? Not old age, but like I'm getting to the age right now to where like I went to my cousin's basketball game, like AAU basketball game this this weekend. And I was told I was in the time where I'm like, damn, 
I'm old now. Like I'm, I'm older now because I'm having these thoughts of like, that I never thought I would have as a young person where like, Oh, I'm watching now. You guys should, I was having big get off my lawn conversations about basketball now. Mm. And I kind of was disappointed in myself, but also was like, I like it. I, I understand now. I understand why it feel these. <laughs> come these to our ways. side, come to the grumpy I, I, old man I'm, side. I'm not, I'm not the grumpy old man side, but I'm coming over for coffee. You know, I'm coming to get some lunch really quickly, you know? And then I'm going mm. back to the, to the, to the young kids table. But like, I don't know. I'm having conflicted feelings about being washed right now, Bill. That's basically what I'm what I'm at right now. Here's one thing, and then we got to go. I have faith in this young generation of guys who I think are really cool, right? Yeah. Like you're talking ja. like the John ja down, like basically twenty. I job. Ja, I think he's twenty three, twenty four. He might be twenty three. But this John ja, Luca Ant. Th- that that those yeah. I would right I would throw in Cade Evan Mobley, who I have all the stock in. Um, a couple of the draft picks. Evan is 37 years old. <laughs> but <laughs> in a 21-year-old body. But I think all of these guys are going to learn from the mistakes of the generation right above them. Not that they're huge mistakes, but just little things you can take away the same way like the LeBron generation learned from the guys from the 90s. And that's how the league works. Well, all the all the young kids that are that you just named just like love Kobe the way like my generation loved Tupac. Like they didn't know him right. like that, but we love like the propaganda that Pac gave us. That's yep. what, that's what that's the hope that I have for this younger generation. That's what I that's what I like. Like I don't see Ja. Maybe that this will get thrown in my face six years from now, but I actually could see Ja being a Memphis for life guy. No, I just no, like I'm I here. To, this is my team. The way Curry is. I went to Memphis this season, and I don't think there's another place that I would even want Ja to be in. Like, I don't think yeah. I would want to see, like, maybe Atlanta. Atlanta would be great. If Ja went to Atlanta, that would be another thing. But, like, Memphis is just, Memphis is a beautiful place, and it's just a perfect match. It's like, it's like he's a better, in terms of, like, love for a city. He, Zebo is one guy who, he's, he's certified, right? He is certified. But in terms of, like, and he Tony has the Zebo love. He yeah. has the Zebo love, but he's a better player. If that yep. makes sense. That's, that's where one thing before I go, Bill, please talk me. I need, I need the question for you and I need you to help me talk me off the ledge real quick. Can you talk me off the ledge of thinking that Derek Carr is the Jeff Fisher of quarterbacks? Just really quickly. <laughs> just give me, give me like, give me some hope really quickly. Cause I just watched two games of the Raiders and I'm really like, I'm crying right now. I, I he don't was, feel good. He was honestly bad in both games. I mean, in the overtime, which it just seemed like the refs were rigging the game for the car. I've never, obviously I had the Raiders money line, so I was going nuts, but it just felt like one of those games where the re- it was like professional wrestling. That fourth down flag in the end zone, still trying to figure out what happened in that. Um, but then they had the ball, they're, they're moving, and Carr had Adams right over the middle, and he threw it like four yards behind him. Bro. And then even the Renfro one, it's like, why are you checking down and throwing a Renfro with four guys on him? I don't know. I, I, I thought he was bad. I thought the, the, the LA, so going into the season, all my homies, cause I've been like a lukewarm Raiders fan ever since they left Oakland, but like all my homies was like, they got Devontae Adams. You got it. You got to lock in. This is going to be the season. This is the season. If you're going to come back, this is the season. Right. And that game against the chargers is, was such a winnable game. And such yep. if you win that game, it's a tone setter for the rest of the season. Yep. And it was, and, and it started and my ear for car started in the red zone where he throws behind Wallard on an out. That was the season right there. That's been the season so far. It would have got him up 7-0, set the tone. They were playing really well. He threw to Devontae Adams like he was Randy Moss. And then they go all the way down the field, and they fuck it up. 
I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just ranting right now. I'm really I'm really well. Upset. It's like cousins last night. There are these certain guys that can look awesome one week and then another week they're on Monday Night Football and they look like shit. And you're like, I can't believe I believe in this guy. It does feel like that was Carr's first two weeks, but he was good last year. I'm not. I just think he had a bad first two weeks. I wouldn't panic it. Are we and doing by the way, nine again? No, I, I think okay. I only think there's six good AFC teams. So you have a. I, I think you're fine. You have a lot of talent. Okay. You can move the ball. All right, I'll, Logan okay. Murdoch. Real ones. You can hear it on the Ringer NBA show with our guy, Raja Bell, and you can read Logan on theringer.com. Good to see you, my man. Thanks, bud. Also, we have Steve Kerr on the pod coming back tomorrow. So just going to plug oh, that right now. Excellent. Yeah, we, have our, we have your friend, your bud, Steve, on. Excellent. And, uh, he's, he's talking big mess. And also, he is. Uh, we have a, rec- a random recruiting pitch for Raja's son to play football, to go to Arizona. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be vibe. So make sure right. you check that out tomorrow. Can't wait to hear. Good to see you. This episode is brought to you by Duncan. I love Duncan. Duncan just dropped a new kind of energy. They call it sparked energy. I mean, they have peach sunshine. I'm a huge peach guy. Like peach with drinks, I feel like is one of the most underrated drink combo kind of starter things that we have. Well, in this case, these are delicious. They're packed with caffeine and vitamins and minerals that give me the energy I need to get through the day. And a medium is $3 now through March 19th. So drop by and get sparked by Duncan. Sparked energy drinks are fruit flavored, contain 0% fruit juice. Beverages contain caffeine from caffeine and guarana. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. When you have a good team of skilled, talented people, good things are bound to happen. That's true in sports. It's true in business. It can be true with digital companies or websites, podcast networks. If you're running a small business, one of the best places to look for those people is LinkedIn Jobs. They have what you need to find and hire qualified professionals you can't find anywhere else. And unlike other job boards, LinkedIn Jobs has a vast network of professionals, like more than a billion people, and it makes the whole hiring process intuitive and easy to manage. They're constantly launching new features to help make the hiring process more manageable. They even created a tool to help write job descriptions recently. Over 2.5 million small businesses trust LinkedIn when it comes to hiring and over 86% find a qualified candidate within the first day. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Simmons. That's linkedin.com slash Simmons to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so I've made a point not to talk about Tim Donahue on my podcast, um, including not having him as a guest. I was surprised other shows have had him on because I don't feel like there's a lot of substance in what he talks about when he was a basketball referee. There was a podcast a couple years ago that uh, our guest, Sean Patrick Griffin, was on that I thought missed a lot of stuff. I thought it hit a couple things, but for the most part, it was called Whistleblower. And I'm like, I'm not promoting this. I'm not promoting Donahue. I'm out. And then this Netflix doc happened. It's part of the Untold series. It's about Donahue. And um, a lot of people have mentioned it to me. And my fear, it's 2022, September, that Donahue's attempt to spin his version of the events from 2003 to 2007 are now becoming the mainstream narrative of the event. So whatever he's been trying to do since 09 is working. Fortunately, we have Sean Patrick Griffin, who is a professor of criminal justice at the Citadel. And for our purposes, I think the number one student of the Donahue thing, he wrote a book called Game in the Game in 2011, which wasn't about Donahue. It was actually about uh, Jimmy Batista, but there's a lot of Donahue stuff in it. You've been following it. You've been calling it out. There's YouTube clips, there's Twitter stuff. You're not like this deranged person. You're just like, wait a second. 
what is happening here? And I'm sure, were you more horrified by the Netflix doc than I was or uh, the same? No, I was more. And I'll tell you why though, Bill. I think these things are awful because if people knew that they were entertainment, okay, that's fine. But it's presented as the story of the NBA betting scandal. And the problem is the public isn't told. It's actually Donaghy's version of the NBA betting scandal. And, and the reason I say it's I really have a problem with this is because this one's different. They literally had access to all the key parties. They had access to the pro gambler, Jimmy Batista, the mutual friend, Tommy Martino, the FBI supervisor, Phil Scala, who I would love to talk about. Um, and they selectively edited the interviews to craft Donaghy's narrative. And at best, the people who've looked at it said, well, maybe it's just a he said, he said, he said story. It's my not. issue is we, exactly we have actual my, evidence. Yes, yes. People are pretending that we're in the fog of war back in 2007, and that's not it at all. Right. And and that's my real issue with this. And it's worked. Like, yeah. kudos to Donahue, because whatever version he's tried to spin, I think has succeeded to some degree. You mentioned, like, what is, what's the intention? What is the spirit of a documentary, right? This has gotten really messed up over the last few years where we've seen either people producing their own documentaries and with athletes and singers where they're also the EP on it. I call them documercials where it's like, <laughs> it's not really do a documentary means we're supposed to be factually accurate. We're supposed mm -hmm. to have real journalism in this. Um, yes. There's supposed to be some sort of balance and this untold thing. First of all, the series is called untold. Everything in here has been told. Was there not, was there one revelation in this documentary that you've heard? Cause I didn't hear anything. Honestly, goodness, not one. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but I actually spoke with the producers months and months ago. And I actually got in a chippy conversation with one of them. And I said, based on what you're telling me, the show is called Untold, but nothing is untold. Well, turns out I was correct in my assessment based on what information I was being given. So to recap for the audience, I just, uh, we could do this really fast and then we can get into some nuts and bolts. Donahue makes it seem like this was only one year of gambling, the 2006, 2007 mm -hmm. yes. season. And that he was basically threatened by the mafia <laughs> to continue in the, at this ambiguous December 12th Marriott meeting that he wanted to get out and they threatened him and he had to do it or they're going to basically kill his family. The people, of course, that were threatening him were these two mobsters who weren't even mobsters. One of the, one of the people you wrote about, Batista, the meeting... I pretty clearly did not happen. But more importantly, he was betting on games starting in 2003. And this was the fourth, either the fourth or the fifth year of him gambling on basketball. And the narrative has always been he didn't bet on games that he was refereeing. All of the evidence says the contra contrary, all of it. Well, he was not only betting on his own games. And by the way, I thank you for what you just said, because the public has gotten this wrong. And as you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I've really been upset at the media. People think I'm upset at Donnie. I don't care that a convicted felon is telling tales. I'm a criminologist with a law enforcement background. That's sort of my stock and trade. I'm used to that. I'm not used to people giving people giving someone like Donnie a microphone and say, tell us what happened and accepting it as the truth. That's just ridiculous. But regardless, with regard to Donaghy, yes, he was betting on his own games at least. He only admits to betting on games he officiated going back to 03, straight through 06. And yes, then there's the infamous meeting at the Philadelphia International Marriott, December of 06, which he paints as the mob. But what the public doesn't realize, the mob actually was his best friend, Tommy Martino, and their mutual friend, 
Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler. And the reason the meeting happened was because Donaghy was upset that the person with whom he was betting from 03 to 06, Jack and Cannon, just a regular guy, an insurance salesman, Donaghy complained that Jack and Cannon was losing money down Atlantic City and not paying him. And in case you're saying, well, where is Griffin getting this idea? Well, from not only Batista, but Tommy Martino cooperated with the FBI. And yeah. that's what he told the FBI. And by the way, that's why if people would wake up, no one was charged with extortion in this case. There was never a mention of organized crime by the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. It was never treated as a racketeering conspiracy. The only reason we're talking about organized crime is because Donaghy wants you to. Right. And what he was really guilty of was being one of the dumbest businessmen of all time <laughs> because he he struck a deal with the uh, with the gamblers where every time he gave them a correct win, he got $2,000. And if it lost, he got nothing. What he didn't realize, because he was an idiot, was once it was out there that, let's say he's influencing the games in some way that he's refereeing, that got out there and now millions and millions of dollars are being bet on his game. And you chronicled this, ESPN the Magazine chronicled this three years ago. The way the lines moved on the Donahue games, especially in 06, 07 season when they could really track yeah. it, yeah. does not add up. It, it 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 cannot be accounted to like a coincidence. A oh, no, no, no. The lines are moving two, two and a half points on these random basketball games. And he's winning, people think like 78 to 80% of the time. And it's there's just no way he wasn't influenced in the games that I can find. Well, no, no, no. Look, if people look at the appendix to gaming the game, I purposely walked the people through the betting lines. I got all the betting lines for the relevant seasons. I had access to Batista's betting records. And don't forget, the professional gamblers cooperated with the FBI. The public is totally unaware that there's an entire cast of characters they've never heard of that bet on these games starting in 03. The only reason they were betting on the games was because they saw the lines moving on games Donaghy officiated. And Bill, your audience should know something. Donaghy's claim was always that he had, quote unquote, inside information, and that's why he was betting successfully. And his argument was that he could bet equally on games he didn't officiate as those he did. And look, if inside information was the reason, that would make sense. There is not only no evidence of that, there's evidence to the contrary. First of all, all the people who cooperated with the government agree with what I just said. They only were betting on Donaghy's games. The betting lines were only moving on games Donaghy officiated. And more to the point, when you get to the 06-07 season, which is what you just said, the reason the line started moving even more, when Batista cut his deal with Donaghy in December of 06, he said, look, I'm a professional gambler. The way we make our good money, our big money, is manipulating the lines around the world. Well, the market starts in Asia, which is 12 or 13 hours ahead, filters through Europe, which is six or seven, so that by the time we bet on them in the East Coast, we've moved the line successfully. So they're going to bet dollars $300,000, $300,000 overseas on the wrong side of the line, get the lines to move, and then they're going to hammer it with two or three million on our shores here. And they told Donaghy, you got to get those picks in the night before because we need to have time to move the lines. Those were only happening on Donaghy games. And that's why in 06, 07, the lines start moving even more. And by the time you get to like February, March, 07, the word is out that Donaghy's fixing games. Everyone knows. The, yes. People, people who have no idea about the actual nuances of the conspiracy, they're just watching the lines and copying them. And it becomes a snowball effect because then the sports books have to keep moving the lines. Well, it's even bigger than that because like our friend Haral Bob, yeah. 
he's a professional gambler at that point. And one of the advantages he had <laughs> was he was tracking referee behavior with the games. Yeah. And he notices like some really thing that just jump out on these Donahue games. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to be like, all right, so this behavior, there's way more fouls. There's all, like mm-hmm. distorted calls where one team's getting called for 18 fouls, the other yes. team's getting called yeah. for three. So that's happening in these games where the line's moving by three points. Hmm. Yes. And right. the word and is out. Yes. And that's, and that's what I, and by the way, with regard to the whole idea that the mob visited Donaghy in December of 06, your public doesn't know this. Donaghy's argument is that he would, he didn't want to be part of this at all, but the mob made him do it. And that he was relieved when the pro gambler, Jimmy Batista went into drug rehab on March 18, 2007, because the mob no longer, and he says this in all the interviews, they didn't have the grips of organized crime in him any longer. Well, what the public doesn't know, because the media won't tell them, and this, you don't need access to Sean Patrick Griffin's still, style. That he was still betting with exactly. another better? It's, it's in the public record. Exactly. He starts <laughs> yeah. betting now with another professional gambler named Pete Ruggieri, who also cooperated with the government. Right. And if you look at Ruggieri's agreement, and you look at Donaghy's agreement and Martino's agreement, their plea deals go through April of 2007. Batista's go through March. For that reason, he went in, he was done. But the scandal continues. And then when Ruggieri shuts the scheme down because he realizes... The lines are moving too much and he can't get his edge because he's no longer in control of the lines. He shuts the scheme down. And what happens? Donaghy complains to Martino that he wants one more game. And this is the guy that your audience has been told for a decade from almost everybody in sports media. And now the whistleblower podcast and this ridiculous Netflix special that no, he didn't want to be doing any of it. There's that great line in the Netflix special. If Batista hadn't threatened you, would you have done this? No, absolutely not. I mean, it's all ridiculous it's demonstrably false well then he he's crafted this narrative over the last 13 years that because he was a referee and he was under the hood with the league he knew about all these different rivalries and he knew like yeah that dick pavetto you know look his games were more blowouts that steve javi and alan iverson had this blood feud that joey crawford loved alan iverson that uh we one of the things he said was he would call the he would do the home away game with when he would call in on the bets yeah, yeah, and he would yeah. basically be like, mom was the home team in the way like that, yeah. they would change it. Yeah. And the Netflix special never asked like, Hey, can we just look up this stuff and see if this is true or not? Exactly. All the work has been done. Like all of these yeah. things that he said, these edges that he had, they didn't actually bear out during the games that they bet. That's one. Then the other one with the home away thing, what game? If you're betting on all these different basketball games and you just say home away, that's yes. that's your code. Obviously, you're talking about your own game. Exactly, exactly. But nobody brings this up. I don't. I'm just like stupefied by the story. Well, I, and this is cathartic for me because you know people have gotten upset at me on Twitter, especially because I keep trying politely to correct people on the historical record, and. I'm not debating this. Like, there's a great example. Again, you don't need access to all the sensitive information I did when I wrote Game of the Game. By the way, all the work is on the internet. You did the work. Yeah. ESPN had a, had a piece Henry Abbott did in 2009. There's another piece, ESPN the Magazine 2019, that lays all this out. You can see all the data. It exists. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. I, I just don't get... My, Bill, my argument all along, because I've spoken to so many people about this over the years. Don't forget, I speak publicly, so I deal with audiences all the time. What happens routinely is I can debunk this, 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 and that with facts. I'm not even debating it, you know? And they'll say, okay, fine. I, I actually wanted to create a website. Yeah, but.com. Because they go, oh, yeah, yeah, but. 
they're so desirous to believe the conspiracies that are pre-existing in their heads that they'll ignore the demonstrable falsehoods and go, okay, fine, those are BS. But man, that one, I knew that was always true. And that's what he says. It's confirmation bias on steroids. Well, I remember and, when, and, when his sorry, book came out in 09 and it was going to dive into some of like, uh, you know, it, first of all, he played the 02 finals card or Western finals yes, card, which yes. was smart. He played the 05 Mavs Spurs yep. series, which was smart or Mavs Rockets. Um, but it was about like, hey, some of these guys have biases against certain players, which is something I had been writing about on page two for sure. a while. I always had a running joke about Dick Bavetta. He was the guy they needed in. He was like a wrestling. I would joke about this, but I like 10, 20% believed it. So I was like, oh, this book's going to come out. He's going to take us under the hood of how this stuff works. It, everything else was so I, it, distorted, I like manufactured, whatever that I just couldn't take any of that stuff seriously after I read it because he was in such a fantasy land about what he actually did. And it seems like he still is 13 years later. Well, why wouldn't he be? It works. I mean, it, people don't know about me. They really do. They don't know about gaming the game. They know about Donaghy's story. And, you know, the, the thing with all that, look, like you said, Henry did it. Bob Volgaris did. There have been a bunch of people who have been doing this over the years. Um, so I don't know. It's a shame. It's very frustrating. It's, I, I, always, I always say I'm tilting at windmills. Um, the Scott Foster calls. Yeah. Well, are, are kind of the elephant in the room in this because mm -hmm. you did some of the work in your book that the gamblers actually bet on a couple of Scott Foster games and lost. So they kicked, kicked those yes. bets to the curb. There's a lot of phone calls that are really con continue to be unexplained that Donahue would call Foster. They would have these brief calls before mm -hmm. games. And I guess the story coming out of that was... Oh, they were just, they're just really close. They're buddies. But if you do all mm -hmm. the Donahue work, this guy seems like a terrible friend. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, right. I, I don't know why anybody would have wanted to be close friends with him. And the theory that I'm just saying is a theory, I'm just espousing this, is people wonder, was Foster getting information from Donahue because he wanted to piggyback his bets? Right. Well, is that a theory was, that, that, of course, was not covered in the Netflix documentary. That, well, and, and if people watch the documentary, that's one of the things where they see the pro gambler was saying that he didn't understand why the NBA didn't do any research. So when Batista, the gambler, talks about a cover-up, he's not talking about any of the nonsense Donnie's talking about. He's talking about that issue specifically, which is, to our knowledge, nobody, including, including the FBI, nobody has ever, because, don't forget, the FBI originally bought Donaghy's BS. He was the first person to approach them. Four FBI field offices researched his claims about all the NBA conspiracies. Well, stuff. and they weren't basketball guys, so they and didn't really exactly, know what to look right, for, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Which, by the way, I'll, I could also talk about how they reviewed Donaghy's game tape in a moment. But with regard to that, they, of course, travel the country. One of the guys told me a funny line was, I wish the taxpayers realized how much of their money we wasted tracking down his nonsense. Well, with regard to that, with Foster, yes, they bet a few of his games and they, they kicked them to the curb. Batista argues no one ever researched, including the FBI, whether, because they didn't really weren't sure of Donaghy fixed games, whether Foster was picking back in the games. And we certainly don't know if the FBI, pardon me, if the NBA rather, also investigated whether Foster was actually betting on Donaghy's games. Everyone well, was listen, looking at Foster fixing games. So that's a separate issue. Yeah, and we're not accusing one way or the other, but what they didn't look at is after he talked to Donaghy, what was his next call? Yes. Well, that's what was why, his call an hour later? Like, right. And that's what they didn't investigate. 
Well, and that again, that's what Batista's argument was. Don't forget, Batista's a hustler. And so yeah. for him, it made it made no sense that people with access to this information wouldn't be trying to figure out a way to use it. And so that's what we'll never know. But anyway, see, I'm not making any allegations either. I'm just saying that to our knowledge, that was literally never even pursued. It's just never been answered correctly. I yeah. still do not, all these years later, 15 years later, understand why Donahue and Scott Foster would have very short calls over and over again during the NBA season when we now know that Donahue was a crooked ref. The, yeah. the whistleblower podcast, which I thought really missed so much stuff, and I'm sure you were as frustrated with it as I was, they did hit one thing that I think is really fascinating in a piece that got lost in history with this, is that they come to Stern, they tell him he has a crooked ref, they tell him who it is, um, and their thought is, I, I actually don't know what their thought is because they're also trying to groom Donahue to basically take them on to find out if there are more crooked refs, right? They want to mm -hmm. see how far this goes. But they tip off Stern. They tell him he's upset. And then all of a sudden, the New York Post has the story two, three weeks later. And the podcast was pretty, pretty uh, adamant at pushing the theory that Stern tipped off the New York Post because he wanted to blow up the investigation. Do you believe that was true? I actually don't have an opinion on that. But just so you're clear here, don't forget, they're not looking for other referees fixing games. They're believing Donaghy's argument that the NBA is dictating game outcomes. Hmm. That's that's the rabbit hole they're going down. So when they say that they want to wire him up or what, and by the way, I shouldn't even say that. When we say the FBI, you're hearing the words of the FBI supervisor of the unit, which housed the investigation. Yep. Your audience probably has never heard the names Paul Harris and Jerry Conrad. They're actually, Paul Harris was the case agent, that's FBI lingo for the lead agent, and Jerry Conrad was his partner. They know more about this case. They'll forget more about it than you and I'll ever know. And yet the public doesn't even know their names. That's a problem. And I can't wait for them to retire so they can finally speak publicly about mm. this. Scala, because he's retired, he gets the mouthpiece and he gets to say things like, oh, well, we were dying. He also says, by the way, in the whistleblower podcast, he wanted to go into the NCAA. Well, is he really alleging that the scandal had referees fixing games in the NCAA. No, he's talking about the idea that leagues are dictating outcomes. And there's no evidence of that. And well, so I don't care if, if you're an FBI supervisor or not. I mean, we're all welcome to our own conspiracy theories. But the idea that leagues are dictating outcomes. Yeah, look, people like me would love something like that. But there's no evidence of it. And the league wanted this to go away. That was their well, big goal. That, yes. They had an investigation that I don't even... The Pedowitz investigation, which I think missed a lot of stuff, obviously. And then Stern was like, well, we've studied this. We investigated yes, this. Yes. It was one ref. Yes. And yet, even though he, did, he didn't bet on it, he didn't fix his own games. They said all that. But if you read between the lines, which is something you did really well in the last part of your book, they didn't rule out that he influenced his own games either. They didn't come out and say, we yes. have done all the homework. He did not do this. They left it ambiguous and yes. they've left it ambiguous ever since. Well, wait, Bill, it's even worse than that because in response to the ESPN, the magazine article you referenced, the NBA put out a statement because the ESPN article by Scott Eden wrongly said that the NBA concluded he didn't fix games. The NBA immediately issues a statement and says, we never concluded he didn't fix games. And, and in fact, David Stern, when he was alive, he was deposed in one of the hearings when, legal, when the sports legalization uh, issue was being resolved. And he was asked by one of the senators, and he says under oath, no, we never concluded he didn't fix games. 
So they're on record saying that there weren't, they never concluded he didn't fix games. But to your point, it's good business. And the thing is, even with that TV deal that's referenced in the Netflix documentary and it's referenced in the whistleblower podcast, there's a difference between realizing there's this. Wait, you got to explain that TV deal and oh, then, sorry, yeah, then sorry, do your sure, point. Sure. Yeah. All right. So the allegation is that the NBA had this big TV deal on the verge of being cut. Their new rushed, media rights deal. Yeah. Yes. It's coming. And, and, and they're going to rush it though, because they now realize this Tim Donaghy thing is brewing and they're going to get this out of the way. Well, two things about that. First of all, that doesn't necessarily mean it's conspiracy. It might just be good business. That's number one. But number two, you can actually, it's 2022. You can reach out to all the media partners and ask them, Hey, did you, do you think you guys got shafted here? Do you think that you got, you know, would you have done this if you had known? Yeah. Why are we even talking about the NBA? You can actually approach these things. And in 2022, look, there are ways for people to get access to people like you or anybody yeah. who's prominent in the media, if they, even if without being noted, being named, you can get your word out if you're upset about something. And we've, we have no evidence of that. It was a really rough time for the league. And I wrote about it a lot at page two because I, there just wasn't a lot of people writing about it. From 99 to 07, there were just some really strange playoff series, right? Yeah. There there, there just was like the the Bucks and uh, Sixers one in two thousand one, which got swept under the rug of history, is really strange. Some of the Knicks stuff, like the four point play with LJ, the O two finals was or Western Finals was the worst one. Lakers Kings, but on down the line, and this was a narrative with everybody who cared about the league and talked about yep. it, leading to the O six finals mm-hmm. when Wade turns things on Dallas. They win in six. The calls are horrendous in game three and game five. I wrote a whole piece about how it was an official officiating crisis that Cuban then put on his on yeah. his uh, <laughs> blog was like, I, you know, I love this piece or something like that. So then the Donna thing, thing happens in 07 and it really did feel like it was a crisis. So I understand like they wanted this to go away. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's been glossed over how much havoc he wreaked that season. And well, my whole the, thing FBI is, did, the FBI didn't know what to look for, right? You mentioned it before. Like, they don't yes. know what they're studying. It could only be, a, he's correctly interpreting some of the calls, yes. right? But yes. it's stuff like, oh, I'm going to call two fouls on Andre Iguodala at the beginning of the third quarter of this game. Now he has four, they have to take him out. And now the right. Sixers, he's their best scorer. It's little okay. stuff like that. It, it could only be like two calls that can, mm-hmm. what did Batista yes. say? Swing at six points? Well, that Martino actually said that. Or but Martino. The issue is, the, the pro gamblers, when I interviewed them back in 07, 08, they told me that they knew right away what he was doing. Their argument was he was calling technically correct calls that are never called. And he was calling them in the right strategic way, as you just suggested, whether it's palming, illegal defense, things like this. And Donaghy, he correctly says, I was one of the highest rated referees. Well, he was. And he also was notorious for calling more calls than everyone else. Well, if that's how you're fixing a game, well, yeah, that's not going to get picked up. And to your point about the FBI agents, this is not a knock against the FBI agents, but having a handful of FBI agents look at game tape, well, I mean, how would they know what to look for? And there's a bigger point to that. Donaghy told the FBI he didn't know what games he bet. Well, stop right there. Well, if you're the FBI, at what are you looking? And beyond that, if you don't know the games, well, A, you don't know what side he picked, and then you certainly don't know the betting lines and the betting propositions. So that whole endeavor was a waste of time from the beginning. And the only thing I wrote in Game in the Game as a criticism of, of, the, of the FBI was they didn't have access to Batista, the gambler, or to his electronic betting records, which I, which I did. Fine. But those betting lines are public. You don't need court 
you know, court record. You don't need a, a search warrant or anything like that for those. My argument all along was if they had the betting lines before they ever talked to Donaghy, they could have explained to him, hey, look, there are these odd patterns. You can say whatever you like. The, you know, the data is the data, you know, like yeah. that would that would have been very helpful. And they just never did that. They didn't know. And incidentally, when, when Game in the Game came out, I had already been dealing with the FBI guys for the last couple of years. They were learning from me as much as I was learning from them because they just they didn't know. And the public doesn't need to know this. This were, the FBI guys were an organized crime squad in Brooklyn. They weren't prepared for a white collar gambling case in the suburbs of Philly. And they weren't <laughs> fond of traveling two hours down all the time to go research right. this. And it was just a nuisance case to them. And once they realized that Donaghy would plead guilty to at least subconsciously influencing games because he had a financial interest and Martino pleaded guilty and Batista was willing to plead guilty, they were willing to say, okay, look, we're never going to be able to prove to a jury whether a referee fixed games or not. And it's uh, we're, we're done. That was literally the extent of this. Uh, and, and the FBI got, and I quote them in the book, they, this was not a big deal to them. It's yeah. a big deal to me. It's a big deal to sports fans, but to the FBI guys who are doing like mob cases and murders, this was a nuisance. Well, one other thing he did, and I can't remember who said this in your book. I think it was one of the other guys, not Donnie, but he could influence the other guys. So he's there with the three refs and they said he was a little devious. He would plant certain things because he felt <laughs> like he could almost subconsciously sway the other refs and be like, oh man, I'm not falling for the Iverson barreling right. into the guys tonight. And just, so even if the refs didn't realize it, and then he could also... You know, he he had some feel from being on the road, at least like, you know, from the players, things he overheard. Like he had like little inside information that people like you and I wouldn't have. But mm -hmm. the facts are the facts. We at least have those 07 games. But if you go back, what what was one of the confusing things was why didn't we have more info from 03 to 06 on well, the stuff that he bet? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, don't forget, back then, the pro gamblers are waiting for Tim Donaghy's friend, Jack and Cannon, to place his bets. Mm. So they're, sometimes they're getting in late, so they can't really move the market the way they want. So they can only get so much down. You know, so it wasn't until the 06, 07 season, they kind of oh, fixed that, did it way earlier. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then they could really go crazy. Yeah. So like up until then, that, and that, like I say, when they met in 06, that was, and by the way, going back to the Donaghy allegations, if you look at what the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office says, they describe that infamous mob meeting at the Philadelphia International Marriott. Uh, the feds actually write in Donaghy's plea deal, in Donaghy's plea deal, that uh, they had arranged a meeting. It wasn't like he showed up as they show on the Netflix thing, was shocked and was scared. And, you know, he says in some interviews that he was shaking. It was that they all knew this was happening and they knew why it was happening. And then the and then the judge actually says beyond the meeting thing, she said it was a business arrangement. And she says that Donaghy was, quote unquote, more culpable than Batista and Martino. Right. And the reason I'm upset at the Netflix people and the whistleblower people is because they knew all of this. These th the, the whistleblower was 2019. This is now you know, 2022. And I gave them all this stuff. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't need to be a part of these things. That's the, some people think that's what this is. That, I'm, I'm, I'm background for all sorts of documentaries all the time. That's not the issue. I can't imagine that people ignore truth and history for the sake of a sensational narrative. I'll never understand that. Listen, I'm not comparing this to the OJ murders because people actually died in that and it was way worse. But if OJ was out there for the last 13 years with his version of what happened and we knew it wasn't true and they made documentaries and podcasts with this OJ version that wasn't true, I feel like people would care. And because this is lower stakes, I get it. But just that it got to the point of a Netflix 
documentary. My my last question. Um, why didn't Donahue just admit what he did? Why didn't he just say he was a crooked ref and just explain the process? Why did he commit to this narrative of, no, I actually, I didn't bet on my own games. It was actually, I'm just this magical handicapper with all my inside knowledge and I didn't do it and they threatened my life. And how does this make it better for him? Wouldn't it make more sense to actually just explain to people what you did? I'm a scumbag. I had a huge gambling problem. That's why I did it. I know I shouldn't have, but here are all the things you could look for for rep. Like there is, there's a better, al- more altruistic version for this to play out. And instead, he just picked the scumbag route again. I have done hundreds of these, Bill, and you're the first person to ask me that question. And it's a great question. His answers are twofold. Number one, he would tell you if you can get in his head, because he writes about this in his book and he talks about it frequently. His father's only worry was that he was fixing games. Well, we should mention his father was a very well-respected ref. Well-regarded, yeah. exactly. Yeah, like he, I know people who love his father. I mean, very well-regarded person. Yeah. Uh, that's number one. But the second thing is, and this is where my background in criminology comes in, if he had ever admitted to fixing games, his criminal culpability goes through the roof. He only admitted to betting on his own games for a handful of games in the 0607 season. If he actually pleaded guilty to A, fixing games, and B, going back to the 0307 season, the way that fraud is charged is it's on the loss to the victims. Well, Bill, think, oh, about, wow. think about calculating the loss. If you could actually show, and I, I argue I do this in Game in the Game, that an NBA official was fixing games for four seasons, yeah, you're, you're not just talking about you know, ticket holders, you're talking about TV revenues, <laughs> managers, players who are playoff shares contract. for players. Oh, it yeah, would, it would the, the numbers would be astronomical. And so it's definitely in his interest legally to say, no, 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 I was just betting. And it was 0607. Wow. I, well, the crazy thing is he worked the 07 playoffs <laughs> and he was in that famous Suns Sun Spurs series that the Spurs ended up winning that, um, I have some. I was on record writing pieces about he refed one of the games. And I was talking about how terrible the officiating was in the game. He was one of the refs, but we don't know if he affected any playoffs. We don't have any data with that. But anyway, no, no. listen, I'm really glad we got this. We got this out there, and more importantly, if people want to go and pick up your book, which they can get, it's on Kindle. Um, you can get the hardcover. You can listen to it. Like it's, there's an audio version of it, but it's really interesting. And most of it's about Batista and what it's like, you know, for this career gambler and how he kind of rose to whatever prominence he had in that industry. But then you had this whole Donahue piece. You didn't even realize you were going to, and that, then that became a big part of the last half of the book. Well, and importantly, with regard to that, that half of the book, yes. I was the first person to speak to Batista, but with anything of controversy with the NBA betting scandal, you get all three participants' versions of events. I wanted someone, when they read the book 50 years from now, and they say, okay, well, I want to know about the NBA betting scandal. I want them to pick up game in the game because, like, for instance, the profits. Donaghy says he he earned 30 to 40,000. Martino says he paid him 115 to 120. And and, uh, Batista says that he paid him 201 to 209. I don't take a position on that. I just tell the public, this is what they say. And, you know, it is what it is. So if you could ask Donahue one question, what would it be? Did you stop gambling on March 18th, 2007? Well, we kind of know he didn't, right? I know, but I want to hear, not one person of the thousands of interviews he's done has asked him that question. 
And I would, I just want to see it. I'd want to know, did you stop gambling during the 2007 playoffs? Oh, okay, that's a good one too. Oh, well, listen. By the way, if you want to get into this, I also want to ask if he actually was betting on his own games before two thousand and three, which I strongly believe he did. All right, there but you I go. only, I only, I only wrote what I could demonstrate. Sean Patrick Griffin, I, I wish we had done this sooner. I'm sad that we had to do it at all, but I'm glad we did it. It's good to see you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bill. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Ariel. Thanks to Sean Griffin. Thanks to Logan Murdoch. Thanks to Kyle Crane for producing. Thanks to Steve Cerruti and Dylan Burke as well. And we'll be back with Million Dollar Picks on Thursday and a big football show. And also, I'm going to bring back the uh, the the thing where I do the four things I've been thinking about at the top. I forget what we even named it. It's been so long since I did it. Did, we didn't even have a name for it, but I'm bringing it back. So I'm going to have some random thoughts on a lot of things on Thursday as well. Stay tuned. See you then. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.